Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell This Week's live four-hour show, hosted by America's leading intellectual is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now in podcast in its entirety, shortly after at thisishell.com, as well as broadcast in abbreviated one-hour shows on Chicago's South Side on Lumpen Radio and Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. I think that's also on Sunday mornings. Is that right, Alex, that we're still on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sunday mornings, right? Yes. Uh, KP. KRFP. KR. There's an R and an FP. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we always there's say There's an A there somewhere. I, I'm just glad that we always just say, uh, it's easy just to say Radio Free Moscow and Lumpin Radio. People should just come up with names instead of these numbers. During this week's hell, the migrant caravan is a revolution in organizing that the establishment media just can't wrap its head around. Localization and municipalism sound great, but what happens if your local municipality is full of fascist jerks? Co-ops are awesome as well, but how well do they address a community's larger challenges? Being a black intellectual in a world ruled by white gatekeepers who only want to discuss the tragedy of African-American life, well, that must suck. We'll have a right to argue that debate is stupid and that self-care does not actually care for yourself. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And I'll explain what makes me America's leading intellectual. And no, it's not my ability to recognize sarcasm. Our first guest who is returning to This Is Hell for the third time. Hey, just like last week's first guest, Natasha Leonard. Our first guest this week, live from Mexico City, independent journalist and researcher Martha Piskowski. Late last month, Martha posted the Viewpoint magazine article, The Rebel Project of the Caravan, Solidarities and Setbacks. In mid-November, shortly after the midterm election, while the establishment news media was keeping itself very busy ignoring the migrant caravan they were fixated on for months up to Election Day, well, we actually continued the conversation on migration when we spoke with Robert Kavoris and Magali, Magali, sorry, Magali Miranda, who co-wrote the Viewpoint magazine article, The Border Crossing Us. Of course, this is not the media. This is hell, so we don't forget about desperate people fighting for their lives as they bravely organize in new and unique ways just to provide much-needed security as they flee from one life while crashing another. We don't ignore those things just because an election is over. Last month, Maga and Robert told us that Viewpoint would be sending a journalist to Mexico to travel with the migrant caravan, and that report would be published soon. Now, 
soon as happened, and Martha returns to tell us what she learned about the caravan and how it builds solidarity amongst its ranks and why that process may be confusing to the mainstream media here in the U.S. Martha was most recently on our show in October of last year. Tell us about her story on last year's Mexico City earthquake, which was a story that appeared in The Guardian. 6,000 complaints, then the quake, the scandal behind Mexico City's 225 dead. She also was on in September of 2017. Martha was on then to talk about her story, Coca-Cola Sucks, Wells, Dries, and Chiapas. You can find out more about Martha at MarthaPiskowski.com. That's P-S-K-O-W-S-K-I. In our second hour of This Is Hell, if you think localization, municipalism, and co-ops are the answers to all of life's problems, today's second hour may get you very, very upset. But I promise you, you will learn about municipalism and co-ops because... I was all geeked about these potential solutions, but they come with some warning signs as well. Our first guest in our second hour is transit organizer Mason Herson Horde. He co-authored the Ecologist article, Dark Municipalism, The Dangers of Local Politics, which Mason wrote with his co-authors, who are all part of the Symbiosis Research Collective, a network of organizers and activist researchers across North America. So, what happens if you finally get all your neighbors, your entire community, to finally work collectively, to give up on thinking uh, that if everyone individually just got their act together, things will work out fine? You all join hands in not only addressing your shared problems, but giving back to your community as well, thus providing a stable and sustainable economic model from which everyone can live better and happier lives. And at that moment, you find out that your utopian dream has suddenly been taken over by white supremacists. It can happen. In fact, it has. We'll find out when your dreams of localization are dashed by brown-shirted tools when we hear from Mason, who is on the board of Institute of the Institute for Social Ecology, which you can find out more about at social-ecology.org. Following that disappointing and potentially dystopian view of what municipalism can become and also how to make certain it doesn't, we'll talk about a challenge and, possible, and the possible shortcomings of another great idea that can go wrong. Co-ops. Zenobia Jeffries Warfield is author of the article, Why Co-ops and Community Farms Can't Close the Racial Wealth Gap. Yes, co-ops can keep money in the neighborhoods instead of having businesses who do nothing more than suck businesses out of the communities and spend it somewhere else and suck all those profits out as well. But if there's no money in the community to begin with, co-ops are nothing more than a band-aid for a problem that needs triage. Sure, the co-op's heart is in the right place, but if the heart is already damaged, sickened by a system that entrenches inequality, then no matter what you do, you're going to fix the more you're not going to fix the more systemic problems that threaten the health of you and your neighbors. Zenobia wrote her article on co-ops for the Good Money issue, the winter 2009 edition of Yes Magazine. Zenobia is the racial justice associate editor at Yes. Find the story at yesmagazine.org. If bursting your bubble on localization and co-ops doesn't make your mind explode, I'm betting the discussion in this week's third hour of This Is Hell will author Michael Denzel Washington will discuss with us his article, The Gatekeepers on the Burden of the Black Public Intellectual, which appears in the December issue of Harper's Magazine. Michael's writing has appeared in The Nation, New York Times, Atlantic, Salon, Feministing.com, The Guardian, The Root, The Griot, Think Progress, Huffington Post. Post. He's been a featured commentator on NB, NBC, I'm sorry, NPR, BBC Radio, CNN, MSNBC, Al Jazeera America, Huffington Post Live, 
and a number of other radio and television programs. Now, we normally don't mention all the outlets where guests have appeared, but in today's conversation we'll be having with Michael, where he has appeared in the media, and what a pedi- media and who owns that media and the attended audience of that media, well, that stuff's important to know. When you are a black intellectual and you actually make it past the white gatekeepers who control the white media that is meant for a white audience, your message changes as all that seems to be asked of you is to be a tour guide of the black experiences, violence, and tragedy. With that singular focus on changing consciousness through sympathy, something that has never worked, discussions on the real causes and solutions of racial inequality are missed. We'll find out what happens when white people in the media talk with black intellectuals, when this white person in the media talks to black intellectual Michael Denzel Smith. And this writing has led me to do a whole bunch of soul searching, so there's the potential for this to be a very intense conversation for me. You can read Michael's article online at harpers.org. Michael is the New York Times bestselling author of the 2016 book, Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching. We'll start the fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell with something arguing that, with someone, I should say, with someone arguing that debate is stupid. Writer Ashling McRae wrote the article, Resolved, Debate is stupid, which you can find online at theoutline.com. The problem with debate is it is a competition that is meant to declare a winner, not a discussion where learning is supposed to take place. Our instinct to win leads us to make debate a pointless exercise leading to supporters of each side doing nothing more than confirming their preconceived biases. And if that debate hate doesn't make you throw your waffles at your radio or however you're listening to us right now and you happen to be one of those people who have bought into the self help movement as a way to finally achieve a happier life. You probably won't be too happy after our talk with Ashling about her article, Self-Care Won't Save Us, which you can find at currentaffairs.org. It turns out self-care is nothing more than neoliberalism's cop-out, friending the social safety net that has made all our lives far less secure. Ashling is a freelance writer researcher and graduate student with a background in law and international relations. After Ashlyn, we'll wrap up this week's Hell the way we wrap up most editions of This Is Hell, and that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff spins the tale of 101 Wellbutrins, which I think is a drug, but when I searched for Wellbutrin online, all I found was the announcement for Jeff's moment of truth. Is it Ashling or Ashlyn? It's Ash Ling, correct, Alex? Alex? Yeah, I'm trying to remember how to spell it. Hold <laughs> a second. I, it's not, I, I know it's Ash, the first uh, pronounce, the first uh, syllable is pronounced Ash, but I can't remember if it's Lin or Ling. That's the part I'm trying to remember. All that stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback. Alex, let's find out what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what's happening on this on uh, this week's and on what is happening on next week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We'll also want to thank some uh, listeners for supporting This Is Hell, listeners for sharing This Is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host producing this week's show, are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Leo, what's new by you if a microphone's nearby? Uh, he's letting someone in. All right. Alex, what's new by you? Ashling McCray. McCray. Yeah, I know that part. Uh, what's new by you, Alex? Oh, I was just uh, making fun of Leo because he, and who's not in the room right now, so I can say uh, he has a uh, lip balm, uh-huh. and the title of the lip balm is Virtuoso. 
Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Zisiphus jujuba, commonly called jujube and known as a red Chinese, Korean, or Indian date, which is a species of the Zisiphus in the buckthorn family. According to an article at express.co.uk, Fructose can help speed up alcohol metabolism, meaning that extra glass could pass through your body faster and you could feel back to normal sooner. Try natural and fruity snacks to help this process. For example, the jujube fruit is a great source of natural fructose and also contains potassium, which can help with rehydration. So that makes this week's hangover cure, Zisiphus jujuba, commonly known as the jujube and known as red Chinese, Korean, or Indian date, which is a species of the Zisiphus in the Buckthorn family. I just wanted to hear you say Buckthorn twice. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. And not only is this God's favorite radio show, but it's hosted by me, Chuck Mertz. America's leading intellectual. At least that's what some clearly fictional person named Nick Pemberton, can't even say it, it sounds so fictitious, Nick Pemberton posted at counterpunch.org yesterday, December 7th, which for me will truly be a day that finally lives in infamy. Nick's alleged article, which clearly wasn't funny enough to be published by The Onion, is headlined, The Case for Chuck Mertz, not Nemo Chomsky. No, Noam Chomsky, I guess. I'm not too sure who that is. Not Noam Chomsky as America's leading intellectual. Before the inevitable article contradicting everything Nick argues is published, and if it isn't already, I am very disappointed in, well, everybody. If this kind of nonsense has gone unchallenged for an entire 24 hours then the state of American intellectualism is far worse than even I, America's leading intellectual, can imagine. In case this threat to our collective integrity has yet to be addressed, then let me, Chuck Mertz, America's leading intellectual, dispute the ridiculous claim that I am America's leading intellectual. Sure, years ago, Matt Taibbi made a similar claim about me before he became too cool to appear on This Is Hell. Matt said in 2008, I applaud Chuck's professionalism. Obviously, Matt has never actually seen me. Chuck's incisive wit and his keen sense of the moment. Chuck is one of the most important social commentators on the American scene. I only wish I could remember appearing on his program. Clearly, Matt was being sarcastic, and sarcasm is the only thing that can explain Nick Pemberton's claim that I am America's leading intellectual. Nick states in what I can only guess is mean-spirited, tongue-in-cheek praise, quote, I think Mertz may be a step ahead of all of us. He claims to be pessimistic, yet he celebrates the intellectual mind more than any person in the media landscape today. He claims to have given up hope, but he tries harder to discover the meaning of the world than anyone I can remember. Now, those contradictions don't sound like someone who is ahead of everybody or anybody. Instead, it sounds like someone who is falling far behind the pack while wallowing in his own ignorance and insecurity, desperately trying to figure out a world around him that is apparently well outside his grasp. What a loser. Nick continues, Mertz is much like the honorable people at Counterpunch, where the article was posted, in that he is really hard to get a grasp of. Yes, Nick, and nothing makes a good communicator, which is what a broadcaster is supposed to be, 
than a public not having a grasp of the communicator and broadcaster's message or who they are as a person. Nick says I am uh, that I am, me, Chuck Mertz, America's leading intellectual. Chuck is wicked smart and always extremely well-informed on each of his guests. He'll take you in a million different twists and turns, all seemingly to the left, but this makes it all the more engaging. Mertz will always be asking the tough questions that often arrive at the point of humble ambiguity, the highest point of theoretical thought. Well-informed? As the person who does all the research and writing for this doofus Chuck Mertz that Nick Pemberton apparently likes so much? Sure, I probably do spend more time researching and writing than most interviewers, but that's only because my vision slows the pace at which I can read. I'm horrible at scheduling my time, and most importantly, broadcasters do an embarrassingly small amount of research before interviewing guests, often depending on questions sent by the guest's publisher or publicist. So well-informed? Not so much. Compared to others in the media? Sure. That's like being the tallest trapeze artist in the flea circus. Nobody cares. When Nick writes... It is Mertz's desire to learn and to keep learning, almost as a never-ending project that keeps the listener on the edge of their seat. Mertz remains so curious and excited about his guest's work that it is contagious. Sure, my stupidity and lack of being informed that comes off as curiosity and is simply me lacking knowledge, that ignorance is contagious. Like a virus that infects other vulnerable, vulnerable minds like mine. Nick calls me honest and open. He says I'm authentic and adds this. I would consider Mertz an expert, but he gains authority not just through his expertise or even his honesty, but through his authenticity. Contrary to the mindset of politicians, acting like the common man is not Mertz's game. Not exactly, at least. He is the uncommon man because he is himself. But the man you know, so therefore, he is common. I have no freaking idea what any of that means. Later, Nick clearly reveals the sarcasm that fills his column when he writes, I assume most people who are reading this have been touched by Chuck Mertz, but when it comes to fame, fame, he is not exactly Beyonce. We all know what Nick does assume. He's making an ass of you and me. So it's got to be sarcasm, right? Chuck Mertz as America's leading in intellectual? you got to be kidding me. This guy's a con artist, a grifter, a scam, a hustler, a swindler, a cheat. I'd even call him a montebank if I knew what it meant. I think it's a kind of fountain pen your grandfather gives you as a gift, and you eventually sell it so you can get a bag of good weed. I'm not too sure. But I know the secret. I know the real reason that Nick Pem Pemberton, Jesus, such a fake name, Nick Pemberton wrote such a sarcastic screed of fake praise about me. Because I am Nick Pemberton. And that's why this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what will be your last Google search? What will be your last Google search? All replies right on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner will get a newly redesigned This Is Hell tote bag. Again, the question from hell is, what will be your last Google search? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's Hell to hear all the responses to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the solidarity built by the migrant caravan through revolutionary organizing, the threats posed by the far right to municipality and localization, co-ops fall short in challenging systemic inequality writ large, black intellectualism is a, in a world of gatekeep, 
white gatekeepers and supremacy will be discussed. Debate is stupid, and self-care does little to actually care for yourself. During a moment of truth, Jeff spins the tip. Oh, no, Jeff does something about a million Wellbutrins. I got to update what he does there. All that plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on last week's and what will be happening on this week's Patreon podcast. We'll have the question from hell. We got a whole bunch of people to thank for supporting and sharing This Is Hell Online. We'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The migrant caravan is a revolution in organizing that is on the move. Here to help us understand how the caravan is building solidarity among amongst its ranks, returning for their third appearance on This Is Hell, live from Mexico City, independent journalist and re- researcher Martha Piskowski. Later, late last month, Martha Piskowski posted the Viewpoint magazine article, The Rebel project of the caravan solidarities and setbacks you can find all of her writing at martha piskowski.com welcome back to this is hell martha hi good morning glad to be on it's great to have you back on the show in september uh, rewire.news immigration reporter tina vasquez returned to our show and i asked about the term migrant caravan and i want to get your feelings on it because for whatever reason i thought it may either be misleading or unfair or even a dog whistle to the right meaning something awful that i just don't recognize tina told us she felt weird about it too but the people she reported within the caravan they were calling it a caravan themselves still i continue to hear concerns over the term is there in your opinion opinion anything wrong with using the term caravan to explain the migration happening from honduras and guatemala and through mexico well, I also, in talking to people, they refer to themselves as a caravan. They refer to themselves as migrants. So I am hesitant to try and impose some other terminology. I think the idea of a caravan can, uh, it just becomes this collective mass and sort of understanding people's uh, individual stories. And at least with Trump and a lot of the, <clears throat> in particular, maybe TV coverage that is used and weaponized to stoke up fear about people coming into the U.S. On the flip side, I think the caravan is significant in the fact that it is a organized mass group of people. Um, but to some Americans, that instills fear in their hearts. So, um, but it's really the term that people within the group have been using. And in, in a couple of questions, I'm going to want to get back to the term. But first, uh, you write that despite the real violence migrants have had to confront, this caravan and its uh, predecessors constitute stirring examples of cross-border resistance, which redraw boundaries of political action. To what extent are you seeing an international movement connecting across borders? How much potential is there for the migrant caravan uh, to become uh, the international, uh, not only migrant movement, but potentially a cross-border labor movement. Right. I think it's really powerful because, obviously, Central American uh, migration <clears throat> has been happening through Mexico for years. But when I go into this in the piece, due to the enforcement tactics used by Mexican authorities with funding from the U.S., people are forced onto these very hidden, dangerous uh, routes. And there's no you know, 
unless you know about the issue, you're not just going to like see large groups of Central Americans in Mexico. It's intentionally um, out of view. So the caravan does provide this opportunity for people to directly engage and <clears throat> in the town that had gone through, uh, particularly in southern Mexico, in Oaxaca, which I read about in the article, there are huge outpourings of support. So I think by having all of these people together in one place, obviously it provides safety for them, and it's also a way that people can engage and show their support, and especially now that they're on <clears throat> the border in Tijuana. Lots of people have been going down from San Diego and other parts of the country um, in ways that I haven't, on a scale I haven't seen before. So getting back just to th- the term uh, caravan again, you write, unfortunately, few media accounts have bothered to understand or record the multiple organizational processes and dynamics that underrate the caravans as a powerful social movement. Now, the definition of caravan might be seen as implying some disjointedness, even a target of violence, as caravan is defined for our discussion as a company of travelers on a journey through desert or hostile regions, a train of pack animals, a group of vehicles traveling together as in a file, which kind of implies a level of organization. Does the media calling it a caravan, whether the members of the caravan call it a caravan or not? Do you think that may that term still may mislead the audience and public into thinking something that is not necessarily accurate about the caravan? Right. I think it does create a perception, perhaps, that there's a spike in people arriving on the border, which is not the case. Um, crossings are at an all-time low. And <clears throat> a term that's been used a lot in Mexico is exodus. So really defining people by the forces that are pushing them out of their home countries. Um, And I found in my reporting, there's a lot of, a lot of the U.S. media was really intent on the how this organized, who started this, why are there so many people all at once, why is it right before the midterms, Um, kind of seeking some, uh, you know, political force or um, more intentional, uh, organizing effort to get the caravan off the ground in the first place, which uh, it there was no relation to the midterms. It just so happened that it got started before the midterms. And I just saw a big disconnect with what, um, <clears throat> you know, some producers I talked to in the U.S., their questions just felt very out of touch with the reality of these people. Um, and, you know, calling it a caravan or not, I do feel... Uh, or the amount of coverage on the one hand it's a good thing but sometimes it also just reinforces people's pre-existing opinions on immigration so what I try to do with the article for Viewpoint is get beyond um, uh, I heard one analyst refer to the coverage as if they're covering a horse race like okay today they're in this town and they're in this town just this very tactical description of how the caravan was working. And I tried to get beyond that with the Viewpoint article to understand how, despite all odds, thousands of people were able to make it through Mexico and up to the border facing incredibly violent, dangerous conditions. Um, And instead of viewing that as a threat, viewing that as um, a really exciting, you know, potential for people to avoid all of the kidnapping, extortion, uh, 
robbery that happened in Mexico to Central Americans who are just trying to get to the U.S. And you write that the diverse entwined histories behind the caravan forum assemblies and related tactics and strategies for cultivating solidarity seem beyond the frame for most discussions here in the U.S., especially those within the media. But if we are to treat the caravan as a movement, as a political force worth taking seriously, then we should talk about it in precisely this language and attempt to articulate its features, convey its capacities. Then you explain how you have traveled to meet the caravan in Oaxaca in the south, Mexico City, and relatively the center of the country, and Tijuana, and also talk to some organizers in the United States in order to inquire more closely into the collective relationships, political coalitions, and modes of sociality that have been engendered by the caravan's spectacular existence. The forces pulling this movement together, as you describe it, uh, the assemb- uh, them, uh, the assemblies, uh, tactics, and strategies behind their solidarity uh, that are seemingly behind the frame of most discussions uh, are seemingly ignored when uh, these discussions aren't taking place. Does the U.S. news media, does the press here in the States simply not have the political imagination to understand how and why solidarity is being built within the way that the caravan, the migrant caravan works? Do we just simply, does our U.S. media simply lack the political imagination to understand the migrant caravan? Right. Well, I think breaking news in particular is ill-equipped to look at this sort of phenomena. Um, I go into several years back how these, uh, what originally were called via Cruzis, which is into the cross, how they have been organized every year uh, by <clears throat> both migrant shelters and other solidarity organizations in Mexico. So there is a precedent for the current caravan. And in my view, the you know the caravan got started in Honduras somewhat spontaneously. And then a lot of groups in Mexico that have worked with my, migrants and asylum seekers in the past uh, kind of sprung into action to support them as they went through the country. Um, so that whole context, I think, is beyond the scope of most breaking news coverage, which obviously is um, in this direct response to Trump's tweeting about the issue. It was the same in the spring when there was one of these via Crucis, the uh, groups that are organized around Lent every year. It's been going on for years. It doesn't mean increased immigration. It just means a safer version of it. Um, and this year, Trump started tweeting about it, which led to massive media coverage. Um, and then based here in Mexico City and all of the foreign correspondents for the major papers want to go cover it. And um, a lot of breaking news now is just tied to whatever um, Trump is tweeting about or his ridiculous statement of the week. And that, um, I think, is a big hindrance to trying to understand the more historical uh, roots of what's going on. You quote the representative Radio Topopo, a community radio station in Jushitan, Yushitan, uh, Oaxaca, shouting out on a makeshift stage in front of hundreds of members of the migrant caravan on a humid October night. We are a rebel project, just like you all are. Hermanos, what you are doing is historic because you have been capable of facing down the world's borders and proving that no one is illegal. To those in the caravan, what does it mean to be seen as illegal? Why is that something to rise up against? Why is that such a touchstone here for the speaker from Radio Totopo? Well, 
Right. I think in that, the assembly in Petitan was really powerful and <clears throat> keeping in mind the you know, internal political dynamics in Mexico. So people were going through these areas of Chiapas, Oaxaca, which are some of the most marginalized in the country, um, indigenous uh, communities that have been overlooked by the state for centuries or actively, the state has been actively repressing them. Um, so I think there's really a a common thread between people in the caravan and these towns that were receiving them. Um, and there's a very, um, you know, people in the caravan have a very strong feeling that they are not um, doing anything wrong that they, you know, in Chiapas, the <clears throat> Mexican government tried to get them to stay in Chiapas and offered them an option to get residency in Mexico, but they'd have to stay in these southern states that are very impoverished and also very far from the U.S. Um, and people's response was, "Where our intention is not to stay here, um, but it's also not wrong that we are moving through this country without visas or other documentation. Um, there's also a very strong um, religious uh, orientation for some people who feel that, you know, as per their religion, they are not um, doing something wrong and they are, you know, following what their path is in life. So <clears throat> I think that really came together in Huchitan with these local organizations that have also been um, very critical and in opposition to the Mexican government and different development projects in their region um, kind of finding a common cause with the members of the caravan. I want to get to that uh, cultural and religious aspect of it in a moment, but uh, you also quote the municipal secretary of Yushitan, uh, Oscar Cruz, who took the stage and addressed the caravan saying, we understand that you're here not because you want to be, but because your countries have denied your right to live. Because the transnational companies and powerful interests who are getting rich off the poverty of the people, because of the violence that doesn't let you live in peace, that's why Uchitan is in solidarity with you. How much are the migrants, how much is the migrant caravan the inevitable outcome, in your opinion, of a system that rewards race-to-the-bottom thinking that is fueled by financialization and the trading and bundling of everything. How much is do you think this is the inevitable outcome of beginning in the late 70s, but especially picking up in the mid-90s with the beginning of NAFTA? How much is this the inevitable outcome of neoliberal globalized uh, capitalism? Was this inevitable? Right. I mean, that's, <clears throat> I think a huge part of how why people are leaving en masse from Central America. And there's also CAFTA, which is a Central American Free Trade Agreement. And the people in the caravan, they don't fit into these narrow, a lot of <clears throat> media coverage has, I think, very narrow archetypes of people fleeing. It must be gang violence. Um, that's the only, you know, explanation that makes sense, which also, <clears throat> up until recently, was... Uh, more or less common uh, justification for getting asylum. But I think it's much more complicated than just saying gang violence, because you'll talk, I mean, I talked to many farmers, for example, um, so small-scale coffee farmers who can no longer make a living off of their crop um, due to devaluation, due to changes in weather patterns. Um, and just across Mexico and Central America, there's been a real abandonment of the rural sector and 
farmers have been suffering for decades. Um, and you also talk to people who are in cities like San Pedro Sula, Tegucigalpa, who can't find jobs. Maybe they can find jobs, but the jobs don't pay enough um, to feed their children or buy their children's school uniforms. So <clears throat> really the lack of economic opportunity. And at the same time, uh, there's just been news coming out that the brother of the Honduran president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, his brother was just <clears throat> arrested on narco-trafficking charges. So the elites in these countries are really um, making a killing while the majority of people have basically no options to have a dignified um, job and care for their families. And I know in particular there, Sandra <clears throat> um, Cuff, who's been doing a lot of reporting for Al Jazeera, she did one story on <clears throat> a lot of opposition leaders who decided to flee together um, when the current president was reelected last fall in a very legitimate election. Members of Libre, the opposition party, have been facing a lot of repression, and um, she encountered one group of, uh, I think, at least 20 Libre leaders who decided to leave Honduras and are currently in Mexico. So it's really a convergence of these broader economic and political structures that are just stacked against uh, common people in Honduras and other countries in the region. Well, that's fascinating that the revolutionary movements from both uh, Mexico and Honduras would be all working together as they're being forced out and forced to their own, own borders. Because you write about uh, uh, these uh, migrants walking through, uh, after two weeks, walking through small towns in Chiapas and Oaxaca. I'm, I started wondering how much of an impact has an impact has the organizing of uh indigenous movements in southern Mexico, which the caravans must pass through, how much have those movements um, influenced the organizing and strategy and tactics of the caravan? Are, are, is, is the caravan simply the outcome of, 20, of a 20-plus year movement that dates back to the beginning of NAFTA and the beginning of the Zapatistas, dating it back to the mid-1990s. Is, is this all part of that evolution, that revolutionary evolution? Right. I mean, they were specifically passing through Zapatista territory, but I think um, there is just a common experience between people in these states in southern Mexico and Central Americans. So the fact that Agriculture is no longer a profitable sector. Um, kind of the <clears throat> lack of investment in health or education in these areas. So there's really a, a shared understanding between um, people who are usually, you know, divided by borders, divided by these political leaders. Because you know, Mexico has not taken a very uh, proactive stance to support Central America. Um, in fact, the opposite. So I think um, even if there isn't necessarily the political language, um, you know, if people have their own terminology, their own ways to describe their situation, um, I really saw like a common <clears throat> thread between these small towns in Oaxaca and Chiapas that are struggling for a lot of the same reasons. And even so, um, they found a way to, you know, cook thousands of meals, uh, you know, get water, get health uh, doctors to see some of the caravan members, and 
I think that really speaks to the similarity in conditions for um, rural and working class populations in Mexico and Central America. So is this, uh, how does the migrant caravan work? That's the important point that we want to make sure that people understand because that's the thing that the uh, mainstream establishment, corporate, commercial, media, whatever you want to call it, uh, seems to be have, having trouble wrapping their minds around. You write that at one of the meetings of the caravan, migrant caravan in Mexico City, for 90 minutes, the members of the caravan paid close attention to the decisions facing them in the coming days and to the words of local and national organizations that had come to support them. Members of the caravan took the stage to explain why they nominated themselves to represent the group in negotiations with Mexican authorities. Trans women in the caravan took the mic to demand respect from the rest of the group. So it, it, what is this? Is this a representative democracy is do you see this system that the migrant caravan this democratic system that they are employing do you see it as any more of a direct democracy than say i don't know british parliament or the u.s congress <laughs> right I mean, now that they're on the border in tijuana i think it's a very different situation but as they're moving to mexico um which is kind of an strongest example of that um <clears throat> There was a space every night for people to voice their concerns, pro-listing from Davis and other support organizations would share information about different routes. Um, And obviously, this is a huge group of people, so there's no easy way for five, six, five people to make a decision together. Um, I was reminded of the people's mic um, in uh, Zuccotti Park, and at least in Japan, they had a stage and they had a sound system, but often they were just in these, you know, the little towns where Nusatek or Savonatek, and the logistics trying to get such a big group to be able to communicate um, are complicated, but I think there was, um, you know, those who took the initiative and wanted to participate in decision-making had the opportunity and also mentioned <clears throat> there was a group that was designated for security, so people who volunteered to um, kind of be keeping an eye on the trash situation, make sure there was, you know, an orderly line to get water. Um, and that definitely goes against the way it was described in a lot of media. Um, not to say it was, you know, a perfectly worked out system, because obviously it was devised on the fly, but um, there was, you know, every night, a lot of journalists would be like, okay, where are they going next? What time are they leaving? And really, you had to wait until <clears throat> the end of the assembly each night when that decision was made. There was no one, you know, calling the shots from afar. And I think that is uh, very powerful. How much is the migrant caravan? Uh, a revolution against the freedom of capital to cross borders without giving actual humans the freedom to cross borders. Is this a rebellion against what can be seen as the unsustainability of a system that gives more freedom to capital, to money, than it gives to people? Right. It, it makes visible the complete injustice of the system. I mean, the people in the caravan, a lot of them, are fleeing violence. Other people just want a decent job and want an opportunity to work. And I think that is incredibly valid. That's not a reason to keep them out of the United States. Um, and 
I if I had the option of making ten dollars an hour versus one dollar an hour, I would try and do that. Um, <clears throat> so by bringing all of these people together in one group, it really makes visible how uh, <clears throat> how the system is stacked in favor of capital, in favor of transnational companies that can operate freely amongst all of these countries. And the people who work for them, the people who make that profit, um, have no freedom of movement and are criminalized when they try to go to <clears throat> a different country. Um, so, unfortunately, that's not how, you know, President Trump interprets it or the Republican Party or even a lot of Democrats. But um, it's the underlying reality that isn't going to go away when this caravan ends uh, or at the next presidential election, that there is a huge inequality between <clears throat> the opportunities in the U.S. and in Latin America, where U.S. foreign policy has really impoverished uh, mass <laughs> sectors of the population. You write how this work of helping migrants from Central America, from places like Honduras and Guatemala, this work has only become more urgent in recent years, and both the U.S. and Mexico have implemented harsher anti-immigrant policies that predominantly impact Central Americans. Hondurans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans have passed through Mexican territory to reach the U.S. border for decades. Migration from Mexico to the U.S. peaked before the Great Recession, and now more Mexicans return to their home country every year than enter the U.S. Meanwhile, the flow from the Northern Triangle of Central America has grown consistently since the 1990s. Now, this is after, again, the U.S. implemented really uh, hard, U.S. and Mexico implemented really harsh immigration policies. Even the countries like Honduras uh, started implementing more strict immigration and migration policies. Why don't harsh immigration policies in Mexico and in the Northern Triangle and Central America and at the U.S. border why don't harsher immigration policies work in slowing migration from Central American countries? Why doesn't deterrence work? Right, just in the word, it's deterrence. So instead of resolving the underlying causes of this migration, it's just trying to convince people not to do it, which obviously has not been successful. Um, I mean, that was a very clear policy in the U.S. to try and shift more migrants into the desert, uh, thereby increasing the number of people dying trying to reach the U.S., and that still uh, did not end undocumented migration into the U.S. I think um, the <clears throat> in Mexico, you know, migration peaked, and a lot of people have now returned, and I think there is also that historical knowledge of how the process has changed, how the conditions have worsened. Whereas in Central America, there is a lot of historical migration, but there are also areas <clears throat> where people, you know, may not have family members or other contacts who have migrated in the past. So they don't have that knowledge being passed between them um, and they're going to try no matter what. So deterrence, whether it's in Mexico, on the U.S. border um, or the borders between Honduras and Guatemala, for example, where there's a regional agreement that uh, Hondurans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans, they can travel freely between those countries. And now they're rolling that back a bit and we're hardening the Guatemala-Honduras border. But all of these tactics aren't addressing 
the root causes, which are only getting worse, uh, especially in the case of Honduras, as uh, the current president <laughs> is wrapped up in numerous scandals, but his re-election was largely unquestioned by the international community, and the Trump administration supports um, <clears throat> Juan Orlando's administration in Honduras. So I really don't see that situation changing anytime soon. So this was uh, partly caused by the Merida Initiative, uh, by the Obama administration in 2014, where they helped Mexico toughen the border at the at the Central American border, the border with Honduras and Guatemala, uh, got the Honduran, Guatemala, or Honduran government, at least, to have more strict immigration regulations, to make regulation at the, or, uh, immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border more strict. So it goes back to the uh, Obama administration. I'm not trying to say that the Trump administration doesn't have any responsibility, but it goes back to the Obama administration. And what also goes back to the Obama administration is the overthrow of the democratically elected president of Honduras, Manuel Zelaya. In your opinion, how would things be any different today if the U.S. wasn't linked to and wasn't part of the overthrow of the democratically elected leader of Honduras when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state and during the Obama administration? Right. I mean, since <clears throat> the coup, <clears throat> there has been no, you know, political rec- recourse for Hondurans. Both the um, 2013 and 2017 elections, there were huge irregularities um, and just the level of uh, opposition to Juan Orlando is massive. And you'll see, you see that in the members of the caravan. So, yeah, this all goes back to previous Democratic administrations. I was a volunteer at a migrant shelter in Oaxaca in 2013 and 2014, right before the Southern Border Plan, and it was really night and day. I mean, just in a matter of a couple months, uh, the U.S. entered into this deal with Mexico where they would speed up the trains, they increased the number of checkpoints. And all of a sudden, people were pushed off of the normal routes that they've been using into very remote, dangerous routes. So <clears throat> this has all been going on for a while now, and there's no indication from uh, Democratic administrations that they uh, were going to change course, because the important thing was preventing you know, another bad PR scenario on the border, like the child migrant and the company minor situation in 2014. So um, I've yet to see, you know, from the political sector in the U.S., any real efforts to uh, address this issue and call for a more democratic uh, elections and governance in Honduras, which it's really, I mean, the recent news has showed that there's you know, the narco state there is <laughs> um, how the shots are called, and but the U.S. has not taken a stance to um, get Juan Orlando hold him accountable. I've got probably another dozen questions for you, Martha, but we don't have the time to touch on all of them. So I've got one last question for you. We have been speaking with 
live from New York, live from Mexico City, independent journalist and researcher Martha Piskowski. Late last month, Martha posted the Viewpoint magazine article, The Rebel Project of the Caravan, Solidarities and Setbacks. Since 2014, Martha has reported from Central America and Mexico on immigration and environmental justice and gender in Latin America. You can find out more about Martha at MarthaPiskowski.com. That's P-S-K-O-W-S-K-I. And you can follow her on Twitter at P-S-S-K-O-W. One last question for you. And as always, for all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So we all know that now with the election of uh, the newly incoming president, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, actually he just took office on December 1st, we know that now that he is in office and we no longer have to deal with Enrique Peña, Peña Nieto's uh, very anti-immigrant and very anti-migrant policies. Uh, and we know that AMLO is going to bring about all the reforms he promised, including, I mean, we've already seen the complete rewrite of NAFTA, too. So is AMLO going to solve all of the problems that migrants are facing who are passing through Mexico today? Is he the solution to our migrant caravan issue? I don't think he's the solution, unfortunately. <laughs> I think uh, Amla has talked a lot about migrants and hit it on the campaign trail, but he's always very focused on Mexican immigrants in the U.S. And when it comes to Central America, sometimes he just sounds a little uninformed, in my opinion. So there's been a lot of different information swirling around about whether he's going to accept what the Trump administration has proposed, is, which would be making asylum seekers stay in Mexico until it's their turn to go to court in the U.S. It's not clear. Um, There's a lot of conflicting information. So I am hoping that the advisors in his cabinet, the majority of whom are very well qualified and have, um, I mean, I interviewed one of his advisors who is a international human rights lawyer. So I am hoping that those voices um, win out, but there is still going to be a lot of pressure from, the Trump administration, and you know he's going to be fighting Trump on other issues. So I'm not sure if this is going to be one of the issues that he really uh, stands up to protect the rights of Central Americans. We'll have to wait and see. Martha, I really appreciate you being back on our show. All of our listeners could go to thisishell.com. And if you search on Martha's last name, P-S-K-O-W-S-K-I, you can find her last two appearances on our show, and shortly you'll find this appearance as well. Thank you so much for being back on This Is Hell, and enjoy the rest of your weekend, Martha. Thank you. You too. Truly revolting radio, This Is Hell. We have heaped and heard praise heaped on ideas like localization on this show. We've talked to those who are embracing municipalism and movements like Barcelona and Camus, but the potential for something really bad to happen as an outcome of the new organizing trend is definitely worth considering, especially if you're someone who is currently participating or considering being part of a localized movement. We'll be warned about what bad things can happen when we talk to transit organizer Mason Herson Horde, who co-authored the Ecologist article, Dark Municipalism, The Dangers of Local Politics, which can be found at theecologist.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, globby, gloppy, 
gory rotten history in 1915, 103 years ago. Arch and Cordella Stevenson, an African-American couple living in Columbus, Mississippi. Oh, Jesus. Right out of the gate, you can tell this is going to be a really, really rotten history this week. Early 20th century Mississippi does not serve African-Americans well. Arch and Cordella Stevenson were regarded by locals as respectable, hardworking people. So naturally something horrible happens to them, right? I mean, this is the South in 1915, after all, and the South was still openly celebrating their Southern heritage of racism and hate. But rumors were circulating that Arch and Cordella's son, who had a reputation as a troublemaker, had deliberately burned down a local white farmer's barn several months earlier. Questioned just after the fire, Cordella Stevenson had told police that her son was out of town and that he had no idea, or she had no idea, where he was. Convinced of her honesty, the police let her go and dropped the case for lack of any evidence. In the U.S. South, in 1915... They dropped a case against an African-American because of lack of evidence. That's really weird. But at 10 in the evening, Cordella and her husband Arch were awakened by a loud knock on their door because they could, and before they could answer it, I should say, before they could answer it, a mob of hangry, gun-wielding white people broke down the door and burst into their home. Okay, that's the Southern Justice circa 1915, I know. They grabbed Cordella and threatened to kill Arch, who somehow managed to escape and ran to get help. The next morning, Cordella Stevenson's naked body was found hanging from a tree near a railway track where it could be seen by horrified train passengers going in and out of town because if you want to make a lynching even more sickening, do it somewhere so everybody can see it especially those who don't want to. Cordella's lifeless body was left hanging there all day and throughout the night. Only on the following morning was it finally cut down and an inquest held in which an all-white jury quickly ruled that Cordella Stevenson had been murdered by Persons Unknown. And Persons Unknown was apparently quite a vicious person or a gang of people because in the South... They found persons unknown responsible for countless murders of black people. They could have only caught those guys, but they all seemed so elusive, those persons unknown. In Rotten History, 1966, 52 years ago, the SS Heraklion, or Herak Lion, not too sure, a Greek ferry was sailing from the island of Crete to the port of Piraeus in high winds and rough seas, carrying some 270 passengers and crew, along with a large load of cargo, including a refrigerator, I'm sorry, refrigerator truck full of oranges. And it's weird when a sea wreck is a welcome relief during rotten history, but following a lynching, everything seems better. Evidently, the refrigerated truck was poorly secured inside the ship's cargo hold, and as the ship pitched and rolled in the heavy waves, the truck repeatedly banged against a large loading door in, on the, in the ship's side. The door finally gave way, spilling the truck into the sea, and water rushed into the ship, causing it to capsize and sink in a few minutes. Hours went by before Greek, British, and U.S. planes and ships arrived and were able to rescue 37 members, uh, 37 passengers and 16 members of the crew. The other 217 people aboard the Heraklion all die. Okay, whatever relief I felt about this story not being about lynching has definitely subsided. An inquiry later found the shipping company guilty of negligence, false documentation, and manslaughter. Twelve of the company's other ships were pronounced unseaworthy, and its owner and general manager were both sent to prison. 
But at least the shipwreck, en shipwreck ended with justice being served. So, that's good. Because justice was rarely, if ever, served. When it comes to those lynchings. Oh, jeez, I now I can't get lynchings out of my head. Thanks, Ronaldo. In Rotten History, 1980, 38 years ago, while returning home from a recording studio mixing session with his wife, Yoko Ono, John Lennon was shot dead in the entrance of the Dakota Apartments, his residence in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And Howard Cosell had to interrupt Monday Night Football to inform his audience, which was one of the weirdest moments in television history, a sportscaster announcing the death of a cultural icon like John Lennon. Exactly the way he would announce it's third down and seven and the offense is setting up trips right. It was really weird. Lennon's 25-year-old assailant, Mark David Chapman, who had waited there patiently for hours, put four bullets into Lennon's back with a 38 Special revolver. And that's why I don't trust patient people. They're always up to no good, sitting over there by themselves, thinking, waiting. I don't like it at all. The shots tore Lennon's left lung to pieces and ruptured all the blood vessels around his heart. Chapman then stood quietly, offering no resistance to police who arrested him while Lennon was carried to a police car and rushed to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Rem reminding us all again, yet again, Mark David Chapman was a dick. That's Rotten History, and this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what will be your last Google search? What will be your last Google search? Our replies right on air during the next hour of this week's This is Hell. This week's winner will get our newly redesigned This is Hell tote bag. Again, the question from hell is, what will be your last Google search? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Keeping Jesus, I am tongue-tied this morning. i got to drink some water. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the threats posed by the far right to municipality and localization. Co-ops fall short in challenging systemic inequality writ large. Black intellectualism is a, in a world of white gatekeepers and supremacy really sucks. Debate is stupid and self-care does little to actually care for yourself. During A Moment of Truth, Jeff spins the tale of 101 Wellbutrins. All that stuff plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. I'll tell you what happened on this week's and what will happen on next week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We'll also, we also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online as well as telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. There's hope in localization, in the concept of municipalization. But there are also great dangers that could make municipalism a tool for oppression. Here to help us figure out how municipalism can go wrong, transit organizer Mason Herson Horde co-authored the Ecologist article, Dark Municipalism, The Dangers of Local Politics, which you can find at theecologist.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mason. Glad to be here. Mason is on the board of Institute for Social Ecology, which you can find out more about at social-ecology.org. And you can follow Mason on Twitter at Mason underscore H2. Again, you write this as part of the Symbiosis 
Research Collective, a network of organizers and active activist researchers across North America. You write, the five-star movement in Italy has been campaigning on a platform of direct democracy and environmentalism. This March, they won the largest percent of the vote and the most seats in Parliament. Sounds good, right? Except that Beppe Grillo and Luigi Di Maio, the two most for, two foremost leaders of the party, have called for expelling all migrants from Italy and ending the flow of migrants to Europe. They entered into a coalition with the Lega Nord in order to have a coalition, a majority in parliament, following the 2018 election, a party advocating full regional autonomy and protecting the Christian identity of Italy. Does Italy electing a far-right government that is promising direct democracy prove that democracy, whether it's representative or direct, falls short in protecting the public from fascism, authoritarianism, or even totalitarianism? And if it does fall short, why does democracy fall short in protecting us from authoritarianism? Well, I think I think it falls short in a particular um, political context. So we have to we have to really grapple with why um, authoritarians are coming to power all over the world, not just through um, undemocratic seizures or coups, but uh, through a widespread base of support, at least within um, one of one section of society, uh, and I think I think one of the things we have to um, really think hard about is what are what are the structural features globally that are leading to this uh, resurgence. What is it that is leading to the breakdown of of social solidarity, of a sense of fear, the desire to be led. Um, and I think in general, these these features are part of a um, lack of democratization. The ways in which far-right leaders coming to power is generally in the context where ordinary people are, are disempowered rather than um, rather than given political power. Again, we're speaking with transit organizer Mason Herson Horde. He co-authored the ecologist article "Dark Municipalism," which he wrote with Christian Bjornson, Forrest Watkins, and Aaron Van Sintian. Uh, they're all part of the Symbiosis Research Collective, a network of organizers and activist researchers across North America, assembling a confederation of community organizations that can build a democratic and ecological society from the ground up. Again, you can find the article at the Ecologist. Dot org. And you write that even as authoritarian, anti-authoritarian, anti-racist movements all over the world are working to take power where they live, self-described localist movements have also won elections with racist and, frankly, fascist platforms. So does direct democracy then do any better or worse of a job at protecting the public from fascism, fascism than representative democracy? Is, is it just the issue of being more direct or more uh, representative that makes it more vulnerable to fascism? No, I think, um, I think the context in which direct democracy um, and, and local control are dangerous is where they become um, institutionally unmoored from their obligations to um, a wider community. So, well, for example, um, in um, throughout the 
mid and late 20th century in the United States. Um, lots of um, communities formed um, into suburbs that um, that essentially seceded from metropolitan politics to avoid having to pay taxes or to have their kids go to school with um, with people of color. And the way in which that they were um, politically segregated from um, the wider public is why the, the, the content of local control was um, was in the direction of, of racism and segregationism. And, uh, you know, what, what I think has become uh, a resurgent fascist base for far-right movements in the U.S. and elsewhere. So I, th- I think it's not so much about representation versus directness as far as this problem is concerned, um, but about how um, how political bases uh, can can constitute themselves around um, localism versus centralization. What what either does it say to you or about the left, or what explains the left's inability? Because the left is often the champion of localization movements. What explains the left's inability to see how localism, how municipalism? can go bad in the hands of fascists. Does that reveal to you something about the left? I think it's uh, reflective of how the left is out of power at higher levels as well. So there was a resurgence of interest in municipalism and local grassroots organizing following the Trump election all across the United States. And I think the reason for that is pretty straightforward with the far right taking federal power. Um, what are the other avenues that we can seize on to um, to separate ourselves from that, to actually have progressive victories in some areas? Um, and, you know, that, that shifted a lot of people's thinking about how um, how forms of localism and the expansion of local autonomy can make um, things like Trump elections um, a lot less destructive. Um, So what I was hoping to accomplish with this is um, trying to get at how um, the right has, has taken up similar projects in the past as well, especially during um, progressive upswings at uh, at a national or state level. You write, the Nazis showed the world that it's entirely possible to be both a back-to-the-lander and a genocidal racist. American militia movements have long fused struggle for local autonomy against the federal government with anti-immigrant hatred and white nationalism. Does Nazi Germany uh, supporting localism or anything, for that matter, does that make it uh, bad, if not evil? Because those on the far right often provoke left-wing vegetarians with Hitler's veganism. So does anything the Nazis ever did make it necessarily Nazi, make it necessarily something that we should avoid? Do we have to avoid localism simply because it does have a vulnerability to fascism? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I'm I'm right. I wrote this piece from the perspective of 
uh, a municipalist, and um, I think I think it indicates that we need to um, actually have a more aggressive engagement with uh, local politics and local political power to ensure that um, this does not remain the exclusive purview of the far right. Um, and in many areas, it's uh, it is uh, a scale of governance in which the progressive left is actually ascendant. Um, I think that it it really suggests to us how we should reframe or approach um, local politics with a um, a different set of of goals um, politically that will will make that. Um, arena less vulnerable to far right resurgence. Uh, I mean, I think I think ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we're never going to be um, free of the dangers of segregationist politics and um, fascist revival until we have fully democratized um, our world, and that necessarily rests on. Um, building up from the local scale. We just have to be intelligent and um, and thoughtful in how we go about it. You uh, point out how writer Brita Lotting uh, argued in The Baffler that there is a greater commonality between white nationalist fringe and the other tendencies within Cascadian bioregionalism and we'd, than we'd like to admit. And uh, you point out that in the Pacific Northwest, fascist groups like the Northwest Front and the Wolves of Vinland have attempted to co-opt the vision of an independent Cascadia and uh, for the ends of white racial uh, uh, separatism. So does resistance, does resistance against outsiders, whether those outsiders are Walmart or immigrants, does that necessarily lead to a movement that is best suited for the right than the left? Does, does fear of outsiders, again, whether it's corporate giants or just people from a different demographic, lead to fascism? I think it creates a um, political climate and a political narrative that gives the far right certain strategic advantages. Uh, I think a lot of times when um, the left adopts kind of loose, relatively incoherent um, language and messaging around defend our community, um, around you know expo- ex- uh, local local autonomy from these um, outside corrosive forces, without a very clear, coherent political content. It makes it easy for um, for racists to latch onto that and to redirect um, that political narrative to their own destructive ends. Um, so what what I think what I think is really crucial is in um, developing a politics of local democratic power. We need to make sure we're framing it uh, in terms of the needs of um, of interdependence as an end in itself, of um, of democracy as the value rather than, uh, and democracy is the value in localism as the site rather than localism pulling back from the world, et cetera, being the end in itself.
So uh, you write how movements for local control can easily slip towards racist and fascist politics by positioning a given community in opposition to outside threats. Oftentimes, savvy segregationists use the language of local control to mask the racial and class motivations behind their political projects. Now, back in June, we spoke with award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg-Hodge, who had just posted the article, Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, as uh, at the uh, transnational um, Institute's website. Helena wrote, unfortunately, localization is sometimes confused with isolationism and even right-wing nationalism. In fact, the opposite is true. Localization requires international collaboration and solidarity and effort and and order to halt the corporate juggernaut. It is built upon a profound respect for cultural diversity and therefore tolerance for differences. In your opinion, to what degree can localization be both local and internationally collaborative? And doesn't it being internationally collaborative, isn't that a slippery slope away from localization? Uh, Those are are good questions. Uh, I think localism... Uh, and municipalism, if they are to be successful, need to be uh, need to be infused with that internationalist outlook and um, be specifically structured towards um, collaboration and engagement at higher scales of political organization. Um, I think that one of the one of the concepts that's really important that um, drawn upon in symbiosis and in social ecology quite a lot um, is confederalism. Basically, the idea that um, we we can build institutions of democratic governance to make decisions at higher levels um, through recallable delegates or um, higher scales of uh, direct democratic process, but it has to be grounded and emerged from the uh, politics of face-to-face deliberation and discussion from the local level. I don't think that's a slippery slope towards centralization, um, because as a general principle, centralized power is about um, authorities at the top, having the um, having the power to impose their decisions uh, on the wider community, and um, what's I think what's really important about confederalism and participatory democracy as the um, mechanism for making decisions at the higher level is that um, those people answer to us directly. That's that's really the difference between a delegate and a representative. You also mentioned how localism, localization, municipalism, it also, you can see its history in the suburbanization of the United States. You write, not all examples of reactionary localism are as extreme as Nazis and anti-government militias. However, 
It is also for many people very close to home being central to the history of most American suburbs. And you're right how uh, urban rebellions, when urban rebellions rocked cities across the United States in the late 60s, millions of whites flocked to segregated suburbs by forming new municipalities, sometimes across county lines, wealthy and middle-class whites were free to organize local policy around excluding people of color and the poor while starving American cities of the tax revenue needed to sustain public services. And you mentioned how disastrous this has been. Suburbanization is both a uh, social and ecological catastrophe. So what explains our focus on the segregation caused by things like Jim Crow laws in the South? and our lack of focus on uh, the segregation and the racism and the ecological damage, even as you point out, of suburbs. What does that reveal to you about the way in which we view segregation when we see it as a history embedded in the Jim Crow Deep South and not in the suburbs of the North? I think that's because America very much wants to imagine itself as redeemed and post-racial. We can tell a narrative about ourselves in which there was was a movement in the 60s, and out of that, um, we came to terms with the horrors of inequality, and things are better now. Um, And and that's a really damaging uh, story, because... Um, many, many cities are more segregated now than they were before the civil rights movement. Um, I think, I think it's really important to, um, emphasize the history of, um, suburbanization and the retrenchment of, um, metropolitan segregation precisely because it, um, it, it shows it shows racial inequality as something that's embedded in institutions and in the very geography of our cities um, in a way that becomes really obvious to people um, that it's something that still exists and that hasn't um, been fundamentally changed um, since, since the civil rights movement. So, uh, and that's a, that's an unfortunate and frightening truth for people, which is why I think it gets underplayed. Right, right. So, how different then for people who are unaware? How different is radical democracy that people who are involved in localization movements and municipalism? How different is radical democracy? How much more or less? Or how much more democratic is? Radical democracy from the Demo- uh, from the democratic experience that we have today here in the U.S. Well, most people in the U.S. don't experience democracy at all. We have um, we have one day every couple of years in which our our opinion has any concrete impact on what takes place. Um, I think what's what's uh, um, What's at the heart of of radical democracies? Expansion of the realm of collective decision making across all areas of life. So, in in terms of our workplaces, most people go to work every day in petty dictatorships in which 
their boss controls their um, access to the necessities of life and leverages that over them to be able to tell them what to do um, every moment of every day. That's not a democratic space. Um, I think um, radical democracy as a more expansive notion, something that can um, broaden our political imaginations of other ways in which we can be democratic beings um, beyond beyond just election day. I think it's it's also about transforming the political realm where um, we have we have relatively limited leverage over representatives. Um, we get to we get to appoint them to make decisions on our behalf. Um, but outside of citizen initiatives and referenda, um, ordinary people have no direct political power or any um, direct control over what happens in their lives. Um, our what we call our democracy is handing off our um, decision-making power to others, and I th- um, it's about it's about transforming the political realm to. Um, to be driven by the decisions made by ordinary people, but also expanding our concept of democracy um, to the management, the common management of so many other aspects of our life, from our workplaces to our housing, to our food system and energy and so forth. Just a couple more questions for you, Mason. You write, many progressives see these forms of reactionary localism and conclude that we need a strong centralized government to better protect marginalized people. In particular, we as radical municipalists have to take seriously the history of federal power in securing greater freedoms for black people in America. After the American Civil War, Reconstruction continued only as long as federal troops occupied the South. Desegregation and voting rights for African Americans were achieved through federal court cases and legislation. The very principle of states' rights, which helped uphold American apartheid and slavery, is itself a form of more local autonomy. How contradictory, then, is it to be both opposed to state rights but supportive of localism? I think, I think it's um, important to reframe the question of localization versus centralization, um, but about the, the kind of relationship uh, between individuals and local communities and, um, and political power in the nation broadly. Um, there's there's been there's been a clear um, historical precedent for um, local power being a mechanism for escaping um, the strictures of racial equality. Um, but also, this works in the reverse in very concrete ways. I mean, the um, the process of suburbanization and white flight isn't just something that white people did because they are racist. It was also a massive project of social engineering from the federal level through um, their racially discriminatory um, uh, housing uh, and mortgage insurance um, and the 
federal highway program that was specifically geared toward both destroying black communities as well as um, providing a way to funnel whites out of urban cores um, and uh, set up their own um, automobile utopias. Um, the, the reason why it's important to um, analyze how reactionary movements have been able to take power in these different contexts and wield it in destructive ways is to um, force us to, to rethink the kind of like simplistic um, dualism between central power and local power. Um, I think I think the solution, the, the way out of this problem, is to uh, fight for a uh, a kind of municipalism that isn't about local autonomy from the outside, but that is embedding itself in um, in a gen in a democratic confederalism where um, local communities, the decisions that they make, do have to answer to the interests of the wider community. They cannot simply isolate themselves, um, but are part of a wider democratic community that just happens to have multiple scales. One last question for you. We've been speaking with transit organizer Mason Herson Horde, who co-authored the Ecologist article, Dark Municipalism, The Dangers of Local Politics. You can find that article at theecologist.org. Mason is on the board of Institute for of the Institute for Social Ecology, which you can find out more about at social-ecology.org. And you can follow Mason on Twitter at Mason underscore H2. One last question for you, Mason, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, ordinary people are far from perfect, but it's ordinary people with all their indifferences and shortcomings with whom we build a more perfect world. It's only through lived experience that any of us can learn that we share common ground with others. When we as organizers go to where people are, offer the resources they need, build bridges across racial and class differences, and make decisions together, we slowly build the foundations of a new society. At the end of the day, it's only democracy all the way down that can give us any hope of universal emancipation. How much is that universal emancipation, that attempt at it, undermined by the idea, the perception that uh, many hold that are people who resist Trump, that the people who voted for Trump are all stupid racists. How much is that universal emancipation undermined by that idea and that perception? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I think it's a warranted idea. Um, I mean, the the thing that's undermining the project is is less liberal distaste for Trump voters than for than the actual destructive politics of Trumpism. I mean, we I don't think we can set aside the need to defeat the right in favor of um, engaging and um, you know participating in uh, deliberative democracy. I mean, we, we need to, but um, this is, <laughs> the democratic project is not just 
about kumbaya and making collective decisions. It is it is the battle for democracy, um, and part of what is in, what is useful about the municipalist framework is com- uh, developing new ways to um, to win it at multiple scales. Um, and I think I think that as um, the the material underpinnings of social inequality are um, are disassembled by um, majoritarian progressive movements at all levels. Um, I think I think we will begin to see a um, a, a, a parallel dissembling of prejudice culturally um, and individually, um, and every step along that way is going to be really hard, painful conversations with, um, with right-wing people. Um, but I think, I think it's a bit of a false choice between, um, beat them or, or engage with them. Mason, I really appreciate you being on the show. I'm very glad that you opened my eyes to what can be the shortcomings of municipalism, but still what are the, uh, great, What's the great promise of localization as well? Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm not as smart as you think. And yes, I do realize that a lot of you think I'm an idiot. This is hell. Supporting co-ops is a great way to keep money in your community and to give work to your neighbors who need it. Yes, co-ops help. But don't mistake that help as a change to the economic system that has created the inequality that plagues your area. So, what good do co-ops do, and why do they fall short? We'll learn why and how when we speak with Racial Justice Associate Editor at Yes Magazine, Zenobia Jeffries Warfield, who is author of the article, Why Co-ops and Community Farms Can't Close the Racial Wealth Gap. Her article appeared in the Good Money issue, the winter 2019 edition of Yes Magazine, and you can find all of Zenobia's work and this writing at yesmagazine.org. This is Hell is hosting our third annual or 12th annual, or I'm not really too sure which annual, uh, holiday office party. Wednesday, December 19. Wednesday, December 19, all night long at Carrie's Lounge. Last year we had a huge turnout, as it turns out that lots of listeners' workplaces either don't have holiday office parties or they don't actually have an office to host a party, or a lot of people just don't like the people at their office, yet they still want to attend a holiday office party with their coworkers, especially the ones they actually like. And this year's office party is going to be special. Not only will the three-legged tacos food truck be stationed out front, but Carrie's will have the Goose Island 2017 Bourbon County Proprietor Stout and the 2017 Founders Kentucky Bourbon County Stout, both on tap, plus the 2017 Bourbon County Stout in bottles. We'll also have, this is Hell Swag, so if you're looking for a last-minute holiday gift and you know someone who likes or should like This Is Hell, you can get all that stuff at the party. If your work doesn't have an office party or your work doesn't have an office or you don't want to party with most of the people who work at your office, Bring the co-workers you like to our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party Wednesday, December 19, all evening long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Let me get to this. 
This week's question from Hal is, what will be your last Google search? What will be your last Google search? Our reply is read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner will get a newly redesigned This Is Hell tote bag. Again, the question from Mel is, what will be your last Google search? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, co-ops fall short in challenging systemic inequality writ large, black intellectualism in a world of white, keeper, white gatekeepers and supremacy, debate is stupid and self-care does little to actually care for yourself, during a moment of truth, Jeff spins the tale of 101 Wellbutrins. All that stuff. Plus, we might get into listener feedback. Alex will tell you what he's been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast at This Is Hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and some for sharing our show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, our Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Co-ops are nice. They keep money in the community. They can give access to good food, which otherwise may be hard to get. They employ locals and bring neighbors together. But that doesn't necessarily mean they are a challenge to the more overriding system of inequality that is imposed on us every day. Here to talk the good, the bad, and the ugly of co-ops, Zenobia Jeffries Warfield is author of the article, Why Co-ops and Community Farms Can't Close the Racial Wealth Gap. Zenobia is the Racial Justice Associate Editor at Yes Magazine, where this article appears. You can find the story at yesmagazine.org. Zenobi wrote this article as part of the Good Money issue, the winter 2019 edition of Yes Magazine. Welcome to This Is Hell, Zenobia. Good morning, Chuck. How are you? Good. It's great to have you on the show. You write, residents of one Detroit historic neighborhood have been looking forward to next year's opening of a food co-op. It will help bring to market produce from a community farm and a part of a and is part of a larger community development project that will include a health food cafe, an incubator kitchen for food entrepreneurs, and space for events. The project expects to employ 20 people from the mostly low to moderate income area. If there is clear demand for all of these projects, all of what is needed here, good food, a health food cafe, an incubator for food entrepreneurs, if there is clear demand for all of that, what explains to you why the market hasn't, has failed to supply what the uh, residents want? Why doesn't supply and demand simply work in, for these residents? Well, first, I just, I just want to make clear that um, I am in support of co-op. I don't, um, I don't want to say that this is to, you know, that the whole article was about bashing co-ops and solely looking at why they, why they don't work. And it's not that co-ops overall don't work, right? I mean, as I wrote in the article, um, it's a billion-dollar industry, I think hundreds of billions of dollars, in fact, um, that co-ops make annually. Um, it's just that they don't. Um, have that same impact or they don't amass that same type of wealth in black and brown um, in black and brown communities. The, the, those communities are um, mostly resource starved. 
Um, and that pretty much <laughs> is what I found, um, that the resources are just not there. The dollars don't circulate in those communities as they do in some of the others where um, the cooperatives are able to be you know, more lucrative and benefit those members more. Right, they're great for the community, but they don't uh, they don't solve the larger problems of inequality. Obviously, as inequality has continued, so how much are these co ops? How much are they driven uh, not just by the demand that the people have in the area, but how much are they driven by the tradition of co ops? Because you write twenty jobs may not seem like a lot when unemployment in in the uh, approximately eighty percent black city of Detroit is. 8%, 8.7%, 8%, twice that of state and national rates. But this is what economic progress generally looks like in uh, many black communities. Cooperative ventures such as grocery stores and community farms. More than 150 years ago, black people emerging from slavery formed cooperatives to grow, sell, and distribute food together because their very survival depended on it. So while I realize that there is a, an amount of demand that drives this need for co-ops, how much do you think the uh, continued existence of co-ops is driven by a, a cultural tradition, if you will? I mean, I think most of it is. Um, Malik kind of addresses that at the end. He's like, he under, you know, he understands that co-ops um, are not. So they're, they're being done to build collective wealth, right? Um, but it's clear that that's not really what's happening. Um, but it also, another purpose of it is also to help those people who are participating in the co-op to imagine, you know, something different, to imagine themselves as leaders of their own community, to um, to be more local in, um, in their approach to um, democratizing um, what's happening in their community. I mean, you've got a couple of things, and so I'm trying to, to address them all. But the last question um, that you asked, can you can you just ask that again um, for yeah. me? Because no, I'm uh, kind of uh, one, 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 right now. No, that, no, that's okay. I was just saying how much are the co-ops driven by a tradition, uh, a cultural tradition, uh, you know, because I, I understand that they're driven by the demand and the needs of the community, but how much are they also just driven by a cultural tradition as well? That's what I was trying to get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think most of it is that. Um, I think most of it is that it's driven by a cultural t- tradition. Um, I didn't. I some of it got cut out, but um, uh, Jessica, I think Gordon uh, Nimbart, she writes about that history. Um, du Bois documented that early in the 1900s that coming out of enslavement, Black people um, created co-ops. And at the time, I think it was like 1907 when he did this this report, there were over 100 co-ops and they weren't just agricultural co-ops. They were um, also... um, um, they were ba- they were banks, there were schools, um, churches. And so uh, that was part of, you know, that collective tradition is that um, Black folks, of course, weren't a part of the overall economy at the time. And so it's kind of both and. It's, you know, it, it's part of the tradition, but it's also part of the need. The need came out of the tradition. The tradition came out of the need. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of it's just as much of both. There's always this sense in the media or this sense that's promoted in the media that things are always getting better, especially when it comes to 
people who are fighting for their rights and getting those rights. And you quote Malik Yakini, executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food uh, Security Network, which is spearheading the co-op project. You, uh, you quote him throughout your article, and you write how he understands what cooperatives don't fix. Cooperatives are a $500 billion industry, as you said earlier, so clearly they have capacity to build wealth, but little of that reaches black and other marginalized communities. Of the approximately 30,000 co-ops holding 350 million memberships in the United States, only a fraction are black-owned. Other efforts aimed at amassing black dollars have fallen short. The number of black-owned banks and credit unions continues to dwindle. A decade ago, there were more than 50. That number is now down to 23. And black-owned businesses in general struggle financially. So what explains why black-owned businesses continue to dwindle? Why aren't things getting better? We keep being told that, well, at least it's better for whatever group of people who are facing oppression. At least it's better for them today than it was in the past. So what explains why black-owned businesses, black-owned banks continue to dwindle? Well, partly because the the resources are still not there. And the the money, I mean, they're still serving poor communities. Um, Baradarin writes about, and I, you had, you didn't mention her yet, but a lot of this information that I, um, research, some of it I got from, um, The Color of Money, which is Marissa Baradarin's book where she talks about it. And she, you know, starts off saying how, um, following, um, enslavement of black people following emancipation, black folks own less than 1% of the wealth. And that still hasn't changed much. We still own about less than a percent, maybe a little over a percent of the wealth in this country. And so black people overall are still not, um, you know, still don't have any sort of real wealth in um, in the United States. And so when you have, you know, banks that come in are supposed to serve, they're still serving a community that don't have the resources, that don't have the the funding, the money's there, um, banks. And then she goes on to talk about how, um, you know, the banks then at the time, too, were just mostly glorified piggy banks. They were savings banks. They weren't savings and loans banks. They weren't loaning. There was an investment. And that's what, you know, drives banks. And so um, drives the success of banks, excuse me. And so when you don't have, when you're servicing a community that, like, even if you do loan money to them, they can't pay it back. You know, that that's not really servicing that community. And then banks, even credit unions and community banks, um, they still are regulated by the U.S. government. They're, they still, you know, um, so you have banks who are servicing poor communities that are still under the same regula- regulations of banks that are serving communities in more affluent um areas and neighborhoods and they're you know they they still have to um work in the same way and then she goes on to talk about how that money you know money attracts money basically capital attracts capital and so black folks are putting their money and brown folks and poor white folks are putting their monies in these banks but because the money doesn't circulate in those communities and they can't really pay back loans and so on and so forth that money then is um extracted out of their bank and into the larger bank. Um, and so it just, it doesn't, it doesn't get to circulate because there is still no money in these poor black communities. Like I, you know, I started off talking about how in Michigan um, or in Detroit, excuse me, which is 
mostly black. It's almost, you know, 10% unemployment here. So, so yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned Mercer's book. We had her on our show when the book came out, The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. And it's something if people have not read that book, they should. In that book, as you write, she Absolutely. details the history of black banking and the laws that have created and sustained separate economies for black and white Americans. And she tells the story of the Freedmen's Bank, which was a bank for uh, former slaves. She writes how, or you write how, within a decade, more than 70,000 Freedmen depositors made more than $57 million in deposits. Most of the money Mm -hmm. was being saved to buy land, tools, and agricultural supplies, as the Freedmen believed that turning wages into land ownership was the way to climb the economic ladder. But uh, as you point out, the Freedman Bank closed in 1874 with more than a half of the accumulated black wealth having disappeared through mismanagement and fraud by managers. The loss of all their capital was something black pop- populations never recovered from. Again, the mm-hmm. ba- banks were managed by whites. Do you think that was the intent of the bank from the very beginning, to steal money from African Americans and to do it to the extent that the black population could never recover financially, even to the point of imposing legal servitude upon them through debt. Right. I mean, and when you say intent, it's almost like they they did this specifically to make sure black people didn't have anything. And, 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 and yeah, that, that could be the case, but it also could be that that was just the the an impact from them not even really caring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because... Like I said, when they set up this bank, it wasn't for black people to necessarily grow their money or amass any kind of wealth anyway. It was just like, okay, yeah, here's somewhere that you know, you can work and come and, you know, deposit your dollars. So I don't even think that it was kind of as sinister in that way of we're going to do this just so black people don't have any money. It was, I mean, I think that's always the subconscious Um and that's a whole other conversation. But because black folks aren't really considered in this one way of people, you know, or human beings that have needs or the same kind of needs, um, especially that that wealthier white class had in that time, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't considered in that way. So when you say intent, I don't, you know, I don't know if they went in saying, well, we're going to do this just so they don't have that. It was like, this is money that's available and accessible to us. And well, yeah, intentionally, it wasn't set up for them to use the money in the same way to amass that wealth. So, you know, um, it's just amazing. So I guess yes and no. Yeah, it just amazed me that you can date back the challenges uh, to African Americans uh, financially, economically, to not much longer after the Civil War ends. Uh, and and I want to get to this other point. Point you write as much pride and empowerment as there is in community ownership of food producing gardens and financial services such as credit unions to support local businesses. Research shows those sorts of grassroots efforts cannot close the ever growing wealth gap that has been historically and systematically created on, along racial lines. Controlling wealth by buying and banking black is one piece of self-determination, but undoing economic segregation may be a problem too complicated for cooperative ownership alone to solve. So what good does that pride and empowerment of community, what does that do for the black community? Does does self-determination even distract from cooperatives 
ability to address the racial wealth gap or economic segregation? Does the kind of empowerment and self-determination that co-ops can create maybe even distract from the bigger systemic issues, or are those those bigger systemic issues still in mind? I think they're still in They're always in mind, especially, you know, for, for Black folks who, they, are, who are very much aware of, of the conditions in which they're in. And I think, uh, you know, Malik says it really clearly at the end, you know, when he says that um, it, it gives people a glimpse into the future um, and to ignite into their own consciousness what's possible. And so while at the same time, and, and so my writing of this wasn't to say, you know, to Black people, like, your work is in vain at all, because it's not. Um, I think but I think it's just the both and effort. I don't think that co-ops are, you know, like this is the only way out for us. And as Baradarin says, you know, it's federal policy that puts us in this situation. And it's going to take federal policy to get us out of the situation. Um, and so the self-determining efforts that black and brown and poor white communities are doing are, you know, we should continue to do those things. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, there should be some of us still focused on, you know, policy changes and those things that are going to make it so that in those efforts, those self-determining efforts, that those um, cooperatives and those grassroots organizations have the resources that they need. Um, one of the stories that Malik told me that didn't make it into the article, when they went to buy land for the um, food commons that they're building, um, they had found a piece of land early on, not where they are now, and um, the seller was asking for a certain private owner, asking for a certain amount of money. Um, the co-op was able to get the money together that, that the seller was asking for. Um, they gave, and they offered them the amount they were asking for. I think it was um, somewhere in the amount of like 200000 dollars So they were able to get that money together, um, and you know, and then they said, okay, here, gave him the offer for what he, and then the, um, he took the land off the market, right? And then came back six months later and it was 60000 plus dollars more than what they offered it for the, you know, in the beginning. And so Malik was like, well, I'm not saying that his intent was, you know, to do something harmful or that they didn't want us to have it, but the impact is, you know, that a black organization is still without this land or access to that land. So um, I think that the overall thing is that we're still aware, right? With the, the, the folks who are a part of these organizations and these grassroots movements and co-ops are, are still aware of the overarching problem. But I think that those are the folks who are saying, well, that's not our focus. It's um, one of the things Malik used to say all the time. It's like, you have to find your post and hold it, right? So what what is your area of work? And for a lot of folks who are with co-ops, that's their area of work. That's, that's, where, that's where they want to focus their energy and their effort and their attention. But I don't think it would do any of us justice um, to just, say, oh, look at what they're doing. That's great. They're, they're building their own co-op. They're farming their own land. Not recognizing the struggles and the lack of resources, um, you know, those type of things that they have to deal with to not have what they really need to thrive, you know. Um, and so that was the purpose of the article. It's like, 
we read these um, self-determining stories and we say, oh, there's hope. You know, we have these grassroots movement. We have these collective, you know, co-ops and all these things happening. Um, and we read the story and it feels good to us that, you know, there's hope. But we don't know. We don't really understand the struggles that these organizations are going through because they still don't have the resources that they need to. Um, it's really a, just survival mechanism, as he says in the beginning, like they did these things to survive. But within an industry that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars, why aren't why aren't these organizations also thriving? And that was the point of the article was to say, you know, we need all of these things to come into play in order for these communities to also thrive. And you talk about some of the solutions. I want to get to two of them before we let you go. You write uh, suggestions have included things like uh, baby bonds, government trust accounts given to babies based on a family's household wealth. Economist Derek Hamilton has presented the concept to members of Congress. Well, not race-specific baby bonds would give an advantage to black and brown children and would be used for a clearly defined asset-enhancing activity, that's all in quotes, such as financing a debt-free education, buying a home, or purchasing a business. Why does it have to be a clearly defined asset-enhancing activity? Why can't the money be spent in any way the owner of the baby bond sees fit? Yeah, well, that would be a question for Derek Hamilton, and that's a question that I, I did not ask him. Um, so, um I was just curious because yeah. uh, the because the one thing that has come up on our show in the past uh, with some a uh, couple of our th- authors we had a few years ago is just give money directly to the poor instead of having all of these systems that determine who gets how much money and the means testing and all the things that uh, people have to go through in order to get any assistance. Why can't we just give money to the poor? Right, I think. Um we have an article in this same good money issue. Um, Ed Whitfield has a commentary about that, about why universal basic income, you know, won't work. And it, and I guess when you said these, and as, um, I guess a key word to, to Derek Hamilton's right. I think about it too, the question of, of asset enhancing, if the goal is to close this wealth gap, um, then you want to um, use that money toward things that are going to do just that. Um, and so things like a universal basic income or, you know, it's like we're just we're surviving again. It, these are these are just um, little surviving mechanisms. There aren't things that are going to allow us to thrive or amass wealth if that's the goal. One last question for you. We have been speaking with Zenobia Jeffries Warfield. She is author of the article, Why Co-ops and Community Farms Can't Close the Racial Wealth Gap. Zenobia wrote her article for the Good Money issue of the winter edition of Yes Magazine. You can find all of Zenobia's writing as well as this story at yesmagazine.org. Zenobia is the racial justice associate editor at Yes, and you can follow Zenobia on Twitter at Zenobia Jeffries. One last question for you, Zenobia, and it's the uh, same thing we do with all of our guests. It's the question from hell. Our final question is always the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Uh, there are some terms that always kind of freak me out when I hear people use them. One of the things I keep hearing lately from progressives is we need a new New Deal. And every time I hear the words New Deal, I think, oh, that sounds like a positive thing. But then, as you point out, you write, 
One solution for racial wealth disparity may exist within the Federal Housing Administration, which offers down payment assistance to low-income people and can provide the kind of guarantees on low-interest loans to black borrowers that enable banks to lend more money freely. As for that FHA providing guarantees on low-income or low-interest loans to black borrowers, you quote Mirsa Baradaran again, saying, It's not impossible. We did it for white Americans before the New Deal. We had a ton of poor white Americans who, because of the FHA loans, it became cheaper uh, for them to buy a home. But she also points out that uh, black people were cut off through the FHA policy of redlining, the practice of denying loans to predominantly black neighborhoods. So how do you feel when you hear progressives say we need a new New Deal without recognizing that the new New Deal was not equal to all races? Right. And so I, I so I would think a new New Deal would then be equal to all races. It wouldn't be the New Deal. It would be something better than that. Um, you know, and, and that's why there... Former Congressman Don Conyers, for like decades, submitted um, HB 40, a House Bill 40 on reparations, right? And the House Bill was not saying that, you know, we should have them or this is what they should look like. It was just a conversation, right? It was to do a study and analysis to look at and investigate how we would go about doing something like that. And so I think um, that would be the start, not just saying, okay, here are these policies. But I think that the question of reparations, which I really didn't get into in this article at all, because that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other story on its own that really does need to be considered. Um, and, and the conversation needs to be there. I, I would hope that that bill would be picked up and that folks would start to investigate what would that look like. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Zenobia. I'm going to bug you in the future because I really, really enjoyed this reading or your writing. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chuck. Have a good one. Yep, you too. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I'm going to ask and have already asked this morning were written while I was really, really high. This is hell. Black intellectuals must confront white gatekeepers, people like me, who only want to tell the story of violence and tragedy in black lives, leaving African Americans deemed hopeless while ignoring a long history of resilience. This focus allows the white audience to avoid a dialogue that may actually bring about solutions to the systemic inequality blacks face every day. We'll learn the contortions that are expected of black intellectuals when we speak in a few minutes to author Michael Denzel Smith, who wrote the article The Gatekeepers on the Burden of the Black Public Intellectual, which appears in the December issue of Harper's Magazine. Alex, what have you been up to this week on social media? Uh, on Patreon. Uh, we're doing Patreon first? Or uh, doing no, media? I'm going to do Patreon Okay, later. I'll talk about it later. Uh, on Twitter, I shared the... We just found out there was a new Ibram X. Kendi book out this summer called How to Be an Anti-Racist that is already on our calendar. I think for August. Uh, he was on our show last year mm-hmm. uh, in one of our favorite interviews uh, talking about his book on the origins of racism. It was a really great Which called, one Stamped nas- from the Beginning. Right, won the National Book Award. It was a great book. Um, also on Facebook, I shared uh, the piece that Chuck earlier talked about uh, from Counterpunch, naming Chuck 
and not Noam Chomsky as America's leading intellectual. Uh, also, someone got mad at me about posting Ashling McRae's piece about debate being stupid, <laughs> so I had to reply to her uh, with a picture of a giraffe drinking its own piss. <laughs> nice. uh, and people also on Facebook really liked uh, this quote that I shared from Chantal Mouf. Mouf? Uh, on the definition of a populist movement in France uh, with the protests happening there. It was really good. And then finally on Instagram, I shared a video, video from last week's chili competition at Carrie's Lounge uh, of all 13 chilies and the names in case you were interested in seeing the site of my very latest bar-based cooking defeat. <laughs> so uh, what's really bugging me... Hold on a second. What's really bugging me of late is the New York Times coverage of the Yellow Vest uh, uprising in France Instead of seeing it as what it is, people who are really upset about a tax cut for the very wealthy and then the government raising the price of gas, the way that the New York Times is framing it is people who are uh, more supportive of cutting taxes than they are of the environment. So it's an anti-tax pro-environment debate, a tax versus environment debate instead of a class debate. The New York Times will contort itself so badly to make certain that it does not in any way raise the American class consciousness or point out any kind of class conflict anywhere. That's what happens when the New York Times fails outside the U.S. borders and within them. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook. And after 186 respondents so far, we have the highest rating possible, five out of five stars if you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We'll read your rating and comment on the air. Like these we have received over the last few weeks. Vegard says, it's not the media. Five stars. We also received five stars from Tom who writes, Week after week, This Is Hell provides multiple doses of compelling viewpoints from activists reporting from the front lines of a startling number of geopolitical stress points, revealing alarming social and economic vulnerabilities from Kurdistan to 4chan, often delivered with strategic dollops of wry humor. Chuck Mertz's interview topics seldom make me feel comfortable, but never leave me feeling disempowered. Mark was also kind enough to give us five stars on Facebook, stating this is hell is absolutely cannot miss content each week. The only podcast or broadcast that I habitually listen to each episode multiple times. Highest possible recommendation. And longtime listener Lee finally got around to giving us five stars, saying excellent in-depth long format interviews with voices outside the mainstream media, especially outside of the United States. Go to this is hell, I'm sorry, go to facebook.com/thisishellradio and give us 5 stars so I don't have to. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, black intellectualism in a world of white gatekeepers and white supremacy. Debate is stupid and self-care does little to actually care for yourself. During a moment of truth, Jeff spins the tale of 101 Wellbutrins. All that stuff, plus we might get to listener feedback. We'll have the question from hell following our next guest. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. 
This is not the media. This is hell. Black intellectuals have to deal with white gatekeepers of a white media whose message is meant for a white audience. And that creates a lot of problems for black intellectuals and what they can, can't, and don't say. Here to explain the unique challenges faced by black intellectuals in a world of white supremacy, author Michael Denzel Smith wrote the article, The Gatekeepers on the Burden of the Black Public Intellectual, which appears in the December issue of Harper's Magazine. And you can read that article online at harpers.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Michael. Thanks for having me. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Smith. That's M-Y-C-H-A-L Smith. Uh, We normally don't mention all the outlets where our guests have appeared, but in today's conversation we'll be having with Michael, it's important to know Michael's writing has appeared in The Nation, New York Times, Atlantic, Salon, Feministing.com, The Guardian, The Root, The Griot, Think Progress, and The Huffington Post, and has been featured in uh, as a commentator on NPR, BBC Radio, CNN, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, America, HuffPost Live, and a number of other radio and television programs. So keep that in mind as he describes what it's like to be a black uh, intellectual who is talking uh, to a white audience through a white media. But first, let's start with this week's news of uh, CNN firing Mark Lamont Hill as media eight or media eight. Media Ite, I guess. Originally reported on Thursday, November 29th, CNN severed ties with contributor Mark Lamont Hill following comments the university professor made about Israel and Palestine in a speech at the UN. In that speech the day before his firing, Hill urged countries to boycott Israel, calling for a free Palestine from the river to the sea. His comments sparked an immediate backlash, with many noting from the river to the sea as a phrase used by anti-Israel groups. Though Hill disputes this characterization of his comments, his comments were condemned as anti-Semitic by the National Council of Young Israel and uh, Anti-Defamation League. Now, your article in this month's Harper's discusses the white gatekeepers that black intellectuals have to often contend with. How do you see that relationship between black intellectual and white gatekeeper playing itself out? How do you see it revealing itself in the firing of Mark Lamont Hill? Uh, so let me say first that Mark is a dear friend of mine and has been uh, a vital uh, a person in my own career who's helped me get published and put me on television. Uh, and he has opened doors for a number of black writers and intellectuals throughout his own career. Um, and I just happen to be one of the lucky ones that, he, that he's helped out. Um, and I think what you're seeing, Mark has a distinction of being fired by two uh, cable news outlets. He used to be a Fox News contributor, and they fired him. I believe this is like 2009 or 2010 uh, when they discovered or someone uh, drew their attention to the fact that his Twitter background was of Asada Shakur. Uh, and so Mark is not uh, Mark is a very principled person, and it is going to stand on those principles. And he is a incredibly intelligent uh, person um, and a righteous uh, freedom fighter. And he recognizes the situation of apartheid and oppression uh, that Palestinians face. And he has made a number of trips to Palestine, building connections and black and and Palestinian solidarity. Uh, And he was invited to give this speech here at the UN. And he forthrightly uh, discussed the case of apartheid and oppression of Palestinians that is ongoing. And, you know, for 
he the, the level of media attack that he got uh, for doing so uh, and the firing that came on on behalf of CNN for me like drawing a sort of connection to what my essay is about Mark sort of stepped out of line of what he what what's proper uh, the, the the proper role of the black public intellectual as defined by the white gatekeepers. Mark was talking about something uh, that goes beyond the scope of what a CNN would desire from him. They want him to come on TV. They want him to talk about and sort of, uh, you know, they want him to engage ideas of black suffering and black pain and put that on display for their audience. Uh, but once Mark is doing, is doing real work out in the world in which he is calling attention to uh, international oppression, speaking outside of the defined boundaries for the black public intellectual, suddenly there's a problem. And so uh, I think that what you're witnessing uh, with regards to Mark Lamar Hill is that the white gatekeepers have a certain comfort level with uh, controversial statements, uh, so long as they fit within the box of what they've deemed uh, acceptable controversial statements, right? Like there, there's a limit to to what you can, how much you can anger an audience, uh, and that does not go very far left. Uh, and so once uh, you have black public intellectuals stepping outside of those boundaries, problems arise uh, because a white audience is not prepared for the idea of black intellectuals thinking and doing in public things that have not been sanctioned by white gatekeepers. So I want to follow up on something you, you said. Why do we allow more offense from the right wing? Why do we allow more uh, angry or more anger towards the right wing and allow the right wing to make make more angry statements within the white media than we do left-wing people? Why are we far more sensitive to anything that the left may say in their criticism than we are of anything that the right may say in their criticism? Well, I think we just have to, to accept that um, from the right, it is all sort of... Um, it is invested in the project of the of the continuity of American wars, right? So, uh, what the right is saying, whether or not it like is offensive to people, it still is within the American tradition of uh, of and it is within the the bounds of understanding that. Uh, the American project is about these things. So it is about racism. It is about sexism. It's about homophobia. It's about upholding capitalism, right? Like, and so in no matter how far right you get, really, all of those values are still being expressed. Um, and I think that what you have is a lot of people who get offended by certain terms uh, because it, it doesn't lend itself to polite discussion but the underlying values are ones that they agree with. Um, and so from a left perspective, though, what we're doing is challenging that status quo. We're challenging 
the very the very underpinning of an American system built on those levels of oppression. Um, and so there's not as much room to go. Uh, you're going to find that the outer bounds of left discourse within a mainstream media uh I, and I mean, when I when I say that, uh, I, I want to be clear that I'm saying where there are people engaged in consuming of news uh, in numbers that are like very like verifiably large, right? Like the New York Times, uh, cable news channels, uh, the Washington Post, the Atlantic. Uh, there's there's a, just a left limit. To, to how far you can go with that because it's assumed that the audience, uh, I mean, it's understood that the audience agrees with the bedrock principles of American uh, Americanism, right? Like the Americana, that we are all in this together uh, despite all of the various forms of oppression that keep other, keep some people out of uh, the quote-unquote American dream. Uh, so to challenge that uh, is to uh, to disrupt even the white gatekeeper's sense of themselves as protectors of this American sensibility. Um, and, and so it becomes just very difficult to penetrate that level of like media uh, saturation uh, when those those uh, those gatekeepers are invested in that project of keeping the American sensibility and status quo. Good Lord, your responses are amazingly enlightening. And instead of me going back to more of my pre-prepared questions, I just keep coming up with more follow-ups. How much do you think polite discussion, how much do you think that that polite discussion either silences black intellectuals or even more largely, how much does that limit or constrain criticism from the left? Yeah, I mean, we don't have to keep it uh, constrained to black. I mean, the, the piece is, uh, the essay is about black intellectuals, um, and I'm just sort of resting it in a personal experience and, uh, you know, looking at it through the lens of the rise of black intellectuals sort of in the Obama era. But this is a, a, a critique that could be made of uh, media gatekeepers writ large. And like, we've just witnessed it, right? We've just witnessed the ways in which that uh, desire for politeness plays out when it comes to critiques of those in power. I mean, George H.W. Bush died uh, and we're supposed to, uh, you know, keep all criticism outside of the media right now. We're not supposed to discuss anything that uh, George H.W. Bush did as president that was actively harmful to people in the States and abroad. Uh, we're supposed to get in on the hagiography. We're supposed to get in on the congeniality that we come together as Americans to mourn our past leaders who served our country. But there's no, there's no desire for, uh, the, the, for the, the, the discussion that lies underneath that, which is a critique of the uses and abuses of power um, and the ways in which George H.W. Bush contributed to a right-wing shift in this country that we are still 
attempting to recover from on the left in which so much energy got sapped up uh, into thinking that the that those forces that the, the what Nixon named the the silent majority uh, are actual are the actual Americans who are most invested in the betterment of their country uh, and that that I mean that continued through with Reagan continued through with George H W Bush and then gets like adopted through the the mainstream of the Democratic Party and Bill Clinton and that third way centrism that still sort of defines the Democratic Party. This, I mean, it forecloses any possibility that you could have a real discussion about the ways in which uh, the uses and abuses of power by it's been mostly powerful men uh, means that we have issues like the like that that we have issues such as. Uh, needing clean water in Flint, uh, that you have issues such as locking children up at the border. Uh, I mean, these are just, and these, these are things that make the headlines, and we we look at them as these sort of atrocities without looking at the actors, because there is a way in which uh, we're, we're, con- we're coerced into a politeness around these men and their and their lives because to disrupt that and to challenge it again means a challenge to the baseline American identity in which all Americans act in the best interest of America and the president uh, no more so than any other citizen. Um, and so if we are working with that assumption, any critique that comes uh, especially from the left perspective, means that uh, if if we're uh, if we're upsetting that uh, that paradigm, what we're saying is that sometimes presidents don't act in the best interest of people, uh, and that can't be the case, or else our like fragile sense of American identity gets shattered. Um, and so there's there's a way in which then uh, media gatekeepers are responsible for. Uh, dictating the terms on which we can debate one another uh, and, and, and the, the terms on which we can fight. Uh, and to expand that means a lot of fighting on the, on the behalf of, on the part of uh, folks like I name in the essay, to do a lot of work, not just uh, within the media, uh, you know, the mainstream media, as I named it, uh, but it means doing some some stuff that uh, is outside of the eye of the media and building grassroots uh, support for ideas that will not find a platform for large audiences. I'm glad that you mentioned centrism in there because I had this thought this week and I would like to hear your uh, ideas on it. Um, I was watching coverage on CNN International of the Yellow Vest protests in France, mm-hmm. and they were talking about the aftermath and how they're, they, then they were showing, of course, shells of cars and talking about how they'd become violent. And then they said, uh, you know, uh, the Yellow Vest movement is being exploited by those on the radical right and on the radical left. And I couldn't help myself but think at that moment, yes. But these are in reactions to policies that were put in place by what I would call radical centrism that seems to have taken off. 
Do you think mm-hmm. in some way that either we uh, suffer politically or even that the black intellectual suffers when they are trying to speak to a white audience through a white media because what that white audience and white media and what those white gatekeepers want is a reinforcement of that kind of radical centrism that we're seeing everywhere. Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, and it, it's it's the ways in which that means uh, to the capitulation to that audience uh, has, I think, a deleterious effect on simply like what we are allowing ourselves to imagine, right? So if you are a writer, you are a media personality, what have you, uh, you're an academic, the fact that you're doing most of your work for a white audience uh, means that there are limitations placed on just how much work you can do and like what the confines of what that work needs to look like so that you don't upset the audience uh, because that audience is responsible for your livelihood. Uh, and, and so, so the, with those constraints in place, uh, what we're looking at is the the stifling of the radical imagination uh, that we then again, like I was saying, like we're arguing on the same terms that are set for us by the gatekeepers, by the people invested in the maintenance of the status quo. Um, and so we're you're, you're like pushing little things, right? Like you're you're trying to I remember you know just writing early on in my career uh, and being sure that every time I meant I was talking about police violence uh, and I'm talking about like the ways in which police are deployed into black communities, I also have to talk about the quote-unquote black-on-black crime. Like, I have to make that gesture for the audience to be comfortable with my critique because they need to see the idea that it is both sides, right? That everyone has something that they need to be working on here. But I don't want to talk about that. Like, as, as much as it's a misnomer, what it is to me is it's an abdication of duty to uh, critique uh, and hold to account the powerful, like we need to be, we need to have a power analysis. That's the critical part here, uh, and that 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 lens through which these gatekeepers are seeing the world are as people as individual actors uh, that are in competition with one another, as if they are, if everyone is on an equal playing field, not taking into account history, not taking into account resources, uh, not taking into account the ways in which these power imbalances have already set the playing field in which the capitulation to power determines the terms on which we can even enter into the debate. And you write about how you are forced as a black intellectual once uh, talking to a white audience and white-owned media, how you are forced to defend victims of, uh, for instance, uh, police violence, how all of a sudden you have to uh, somehow give that person humanity. What does it tell you, what does it reveal to you maybe about a person's worldview or Maybe the way that white people, uh, you know, interact with the place around us, everywhere around us. What does it reveal to you about uh, an audience when they ask you to defend a victim 
of a violent crime. What does is that a, is that a dog whistle for something else, and it's just a dog whistle I can't hear? I mean, what it it says to me is that the consideration of humanity rests in something that uh, that people don't even have a definition for, right? Like, I I think that when people are earnestly looking for uh, someone to to say that uh, this person did not deserve to be killed, I think that uh, people aren't thinking through the idea of an inherent humanity, that that there is something valuable in and of itself about life. And I'm getting like, like that, that sounds like a very lofty, like larger philosophical thing, right? But it, I think that it then expresses itself uh, in this way that like asks people concrete questions about who they are and why they deserve to be here. And it's a very warped sense of uh, who we are as human beings uh, and what we owe to each other, right? And I think that, um, you know, it, 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 it then plays out again on those lines of different forms of oppression, right? Like, you need to tell me why I should care about you. Uh, and you need to tell me that this thing that I find different and odd about you is worthy of my consideration for your humanity. Um, and so I think that people are, are, are conditioned in a certain way to think only of their own humanity, and they can then spot the humanity of those who are of their same social class, uh, are of their same gender, are of the same race, uh, in, that the particular, in the, the particular ways in which that uh, those things accrue power uh, along those lines means that, like, for, for white people who are asking uh, someone like myself or other, like, black writers and intellectuals and stuff to defend the, the life of a Michael Brown or a Trayvon Martin and to say, like, tell me why this person did not deserve to be killed there's there's just a lack of uh there's a lack of sense uh, around the, the just inherent value of life uh and th- that to me like speaks to something even deeper than than just like the like blackness escapes me and that i can't i, I can't comprehend it but because people do right like they know that they feel an affection for like a black celebrity, right? Like they, they know that they feel that and that they would mourn this celebrity's death. But what they've done is say that that person has done something for me. They have contributed something to my life that mitigates my feelings around uh, all of those things that I've in- inherited around like my ideas of them being black and different and therefore unworthy. Uh, and so you, they want me or... Uh, folks like me to then perform that for them in instances where people are victims of horrific violence at the hands of the state because they don't want to divorce themselves from the idea of the state and they don't want to have to consider that their own sense of uh, what is human and what is worthy has anything to uh, to to gain from uh, the consideration of those who are not like them. And the the uptick in the amount of deadly 
violence our society apparently will accept. That really freaks me out because of like concealed carry weapon laws. And I'll hear people say, well, that guy went into that uh, liquor store and he held him up with a gun and the owner killed him. And isn't that great? Well, no, because I don't think robbing a store should get the death penalty. So it always mm-hmm. amazes me to what extent we accept violence. But I, I want to ask you one other thing about Mark Lamont Hill because of something you were just you were saying earlier. Why is that message or even the use of the word apartheid, and in that case, he was referring to Israeli-Palestinian politics. Why does that word, why is, why does that resonate more with a black audience than it would with a white audience? Why is it seemingly not as tolerated by a white audience as it is by a black audience? What, because what I'm trying to get at is, what does that reveal about the message that a black audience can, you know, understand and interpret? And the West, the message that a white audience can understand and interpret. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I mean, we we know the U.S. relationship to Israel, and it's like it is its protector. It is, and it is like funded all of its military and all of these things, right? So I, I, we have to understand that 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 relationship means a lot to a lot of people, um, uh, and that. There then there's I mean there's a number of different issues there right but I, I say that to say um, once you are then applying the term apartheid to a friend of the United States right with what well, we we understand that the term apartheid is evil because we decided that it was evil when it was happening in South Africa we decided that that was an evil thing like no one should do that. Now you're saying that a friend of the United States, like a very close ally of the United States, the the, the country that the United States has taken on as a, a partner and that is going to protect from foreign invasion or what have you, is going to ensure its existence, that that country, that government is practicing that evil thing. So what does it then say about the United States? Um, but it's an accurate description of what is going on, right? Like that's, it's not meant to, uh, I don't, I mean, yes, it is like apartheid in and of itself is an evil, but it's not meant to invoke uh, anything other than an apt description of what the situation is. Uh, and I think we're squeamish around language that we have deemed uh unacceptable in the United States uh, because of what it does reveal, right? Like, if we can recognize that apartheid is an evil uh, and a close ally of ours is practicing apartheid, we have to reevaluate that we would have to reevaluate that relationship if we are to stand on the principles that we say we do. Um, for, for an audience that is not invested so much in uh, or that feels a kinship for the oppressed more than they do the oppressor, apartheid is simply the, the description, right? Like that is the description of the uh, form of oppression that the Palestinians are currently suffering under. Um, so, so I think that like, you know, it, it's more, it's why, you know, it, people get squeamish when you, you make comparisons of, of the, you know, current, prison industrial complex to slavery, right? Like you get squeamish about it because you don't want to have to think about 
the idea that there's a continuation of something that you understand as evil, right? Like the goalposts have been moved, right? Like slavery wasn't considered evil by everyone at that time. Now we consider it as an evil. Well, if there are things about prison that are similar, that strike similar notes and similar chords to what what uh, a system of slavery uh, is inflicted, then you have to start thinking differently about that institution. And we don't. The American public does not want to do that work because, again, that fragile American identity rests on the idea rested a lot on the idea of us as uh, moral arbiters of good and evil and that we know what is best for ourselves and for the world. So uh, you quote a past guest on our show writing in the Village Voice. That's Adolph Reed. And he writes, black intellectuals need to address both black and white audiences and those different acts of communication Uh, They proceed from objectives that are distinct and often incompatible. And you add being a black public intellectual has always meant serving two masters. And one of those masters is so needy that the other is hardly tended to. Now, I know that you've touched on this already, but why is addressing both white and black audiences incompatible? Well, the the audiences require different things. Uh, Again, so the white audience is looking for you to be a cultural tour guide uh, to tell them about, uh, you know, things that they don't understand, things that they don't come in contact with. Like, tell me why they listen to this music. Tell me why they eat this food. Tell me why they do this. Tell me why they blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then in instances of tragedy, like, tell me why this person deserved to live. Tell me why uh, the police should not have shot them. Tell me why these people deserve water. Uh, You know, um, and and that's not something that a black audience needs to hear about themselves, right? Like, you don't need me to explain to them uh, why they deserve clean water. They don't need me to explain uh, that the that police patrol their neighborhoods and that uh, and the reasons for them doing so, right? Like, what an intellectual, what a black intellectual project would look like if it could speak at least the majority of the time to black audiences would be something completely different. And and I'm not even saying it strictly in a like political sense, right? Like the work of cultural criticism could look different if you're not taking the, not taking every other moment to explain uh, what some slang means or the history of a, a certain type of fashion or like that, you know, you have to start with uh, explaining the the roots of certain types of music or, or what have you, that there's a cultural language already established that we don't have to get into before we can start to discuss, like, what the value of this piece of art is for us. And then in the political project, it's like, it's saying, well, if we don't have to explain our humanity to one another, uh, what we're doing here. Um, as people who have this kinship as, as, as a, of a shared oppression, uh, is figuring out how to dismantle that oppression. Uh, and what I'm lamenting in this essay is that uh, given how much time is needed to address white audiences, because that's how you will make a living doing this work, 
there is little time to think about that other project. And then like, don't even, I can't even imagine now what that actually looks like, uh, that I'm so consumed with the explanation of my existence that I haven't gotten the time to consider outside of those constraints, uh, what it means, what a liberation project like should for, for our era should look like in concert with other black folks, black intellectuals and activists, like what does it mean? Uh, what was it? What would it mean for an activist organization to not have to be competing for funding from uh, like white gatekeeper, like nonprofit institutions, right? Like there's so much to consider that we don't know about ourselves and what our struggles could look like if we were free from having to do that. However, there are a lot of people within white America who are unaware or are in denial about the violence and tragedy that too often does happen in the living experience of African Americans here in the United States. And you write about this in your article, why doesn't sympathy work in changing consciousness in order to address the systemic, the institutional problems of racism? Why isn't just getting people informed about the challenges and the barriers and uh, that uh, black America face every day, why doesn't that work in changing consciousness through sympathy to address racism? Well, yeah, so I think that uh, so this is, you know, part of the push and pull of the essay is that that project of sort of educating a public that does not, that generally does not know, is not aware of these issues, feels like it takes on a level of importance uh, because you feel like once they know, once they know the horrors, once they're aware of it, then they have no choice but to address it and to change it. But what that doesn't account for uh, is the unwillingness of people to seed power and privilege, right? Like there are there are a number of things that are going to happen for white people because they are white. Uh, there are things that they're not going to have to think about because they are white. They don't suddenly just want to have to think about those things, right? Like they don't want to have to give up the privileges that accrue uh, from that level of power. Um, so appealing to sympathy would mean that the, you're, you're talking to an audience uh, that has already expressed a willingness to uh, rid themselves of their own power and privilege. That's the only way that that appeal is going to work. Uh, but we're not there. We're not dealing with people that are looking at atrocities and saying, oh, because that atrocity exists and, like, I want to end it because to end it means an end to their current self, right? Like the 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 ravages of whiteness uh, mean that a lot of white people get to live in relative comfort. Why would you want to to see that? Why would you want to give it up? Um, that I mean, you can look and you can cry and and see those kids being locked up at the border, but that is a protection of whiteness, 
there's a protection of a white future. And so there's only so much that you're going to do to stop it. <laughs> you know, if you don't, if you're not actually invested in, like you're invested in not seeing the images, right? Like it's, people want those images to go away. They don't want to have to feel the sadness of witnessing that kind of brutality. But as long as the brutality uh, exists in the shadows and does not disrupt their day to day, they're fine with it because to exist in the world that that like that these forms of oppression have built means to live in the world of comfort uh, and and then and and not having to have your identity disrupted, uh, not having to have your material wealth disrupted, uh, and so so there's just a way in which that that. The appeal to sympathy is not going to work if you're not undercutting power. You uh, often quote throughout your uh, throughout this article. Uh, you quote the work of James Baldwin, and you write at a time of national uphe- upheaval in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, James Baldwin adroitly described the rot of white supremacy eating away at the possibility of American democracy. How well do you think the threat of white supremacy to democracy, how well is that understood in the United States? More importantly, how does that, is there a difference in the level of understanding that African Americans have compared to white Americans when it comes to the threat of white supremacy to democracy? Do whites simply not understand how much of a threat it is to democracy while African Americans do? Well, I would say that the actual threat is that, like, those two are simply incompatible, right? And the fact that we are built more, that this is a country built more on uh, white supremacy than it is the principles of democracy. I don't believe that we've ever actually established the democracy that we profess, right? Like, I mean, we're just looking at the, at a basic tenet of what our democracy is supposed to be built on, right? Like the right to vote. I mean, this is the, like one of the most basic ideas of, of our democracy. We can get into other issues of like actual free speech and press and all of that, but a basic idea of democracy, of a democratic society, is that the people have a right to vote, to have their voices heard in day-to-day functioning of our government, right? I mean, we start out in a slave society. There are people living in this in that country that cannot vote, are legally in bondage. Is that a democracy? There are people who are denied the the the, the vote on the basis of their gender. This is not a democracy. Uh, you extend the franchise to some people and then immediately take it away. Excuse me. Uh, after the Civil War, uh, I mean. Is this in itself a democracy? I mean, we're talking about the franchise not being extended to uh, people on the basis of, to everyone on the basis, uh, and not being excluded on the basis of gender and race until the 60s. Uh, and then, then then we have to, to get another amendment to get a, like 18-year-old adults the ability to, to vote in elections, right? So, I mean, that's just, like that's just the very so this is the first couple hundred years in which not everyone is able to participate in democracy like on a legal basis 
And now we're we're in an era of like legal right to vote, but suppression tactics that are so uh, detrimental to that ability that the question is like, do we have an actual democracy? Like if, if everyone's not automatically registered to vote when they turn 18, and we can even talk about like lowering that, that the age of voting, right? Like, do we have a democracy if you have to do so much for the right to vote? Um, and if you are, and if there are voter suppression tactics that are aimed at, that are just like deliberately discriminating like, on the basis of, who you are going to vote for on the basis of your identity, because it's believed that, uh, and it's shown obviously that people of color are going to vote more for a democratic candidate, uh, for like ostensibly liberal or left candidates, uh, that young people are going to vote for these candidates. And like, there are legislative bodies actively figuring out ways to deny those people the vote. I mean, and all of this, again, being steeped in white supremacy. It is about the maintenance of a white patriarchal uh, power system. They are devising ways for people not to be able to vote. So white supremacy, democracy, they are incompatible. And as long as we have a system, as long as white supremacy exists, as long as that is a foundational principle uh, through which our politics operates, we do not have a democracy. Yeah, it reminds me of how uh, James Baldwin, I think, was in an interview with Robert Penn Warren, was talking about how I think he'd been described as a civil rights activist or part of the civil rights movement. And he didn't like the term civil rights activist or civil rights movement because that kind of separated the rights of African-Americans away from the rights of everybody else. They are not just your civil rights. They are the rights that are already guaranteed you by the Constitution. So it shouldn't have been a civil rights movement. That was just a equality movement or a rights movement in general or have, finally having rights applied to everyone. And it's a, yeah. it's a really interesting way to think about the civil rights movement when you think of it as being separated from the idea of rights in general. You uh, point out that uh, in an Atlantic story on the growing number and prominence of black and in 1995, Adolf Reed took a bleaker view of the new generation of uh, black intellectuals in a Village Voice essay. According to Reed, these intellectuals did little more than use their elite credentials to garner prestige from white gatekeepers eager to have them explain black culture. Reed, Reed argued that because they spent their intellectual capital entertaining a white audience, they had so far failed to focus on the black audience, which desired, quote, careful, tough-minded examination of the multifarious dynamics shaping black social life. And then you add, and so they had formed no real program to combat white supremacy. So I'm white. I fear that I'm doing the same thing. What I hope to do, though, is both introduce concepts to a white audience they may be unaware of, while simultaneously doing what I can to hopefully further that conversation on on race for everyone listening, not just white people. What can or what should I do or anyone in my position do to assure having a careful, tough-minded examination of the multifarious dynamics shaping black social life and not only speaking to a a white audience? Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll address that. But real quickly, I wanted to say on that point about James Baldwin and his uh, disdain for the term civil rights movement, Uh, he also preferred the term, uh, and he said in, in a, a lecture later in, in after the sort of uh, 
initial burst of, of activism, that he preferred the term the latest slave rebellion, because it is a situation in which if you are fighting for civil rights, then you must not have any rights. And if you, are, if you have no rights, then who are you? And you, you must be still a slave, right? If that, if that was your original station in life, uh, and that slaves can do nothing but rebel. Uh, and so he preferred to, to use the term latest slave rebellion. And it's something that I think about and sort of the, the way that that frames a different view of our movement, uh, if we are looking at it from the position of whether or not we are fighting for the rights that have been guaranteed to us, uh, or that we're looking at from from the perspective of uh, not having those rights in the first place and needing to establish that we do indeed have them and and, and deserve them. Um, I think you know it, it's tricky to me to to answer questions about like what should then like white people be doing to ensure that uh, black public intellectuals then have the the ability to do this kind of work. I think it, it's really a matter of uh, it first starts with the questioning of your own assumptions, right? Like I think uh, I think it it and there's there's a there's for me a lot of uh, media tropes that are just a, a byproduct of laziness, right? That uh, that it is so easy for folks to do the same story and over over and over again because they understand or think that they understand the stakes involved, think that they understand the players involved, think that they understand um, all of the nuances involved and that they can tell some stories. I was just talking to a friend recently, uh, a Muslim woman who went to uh, journalism school and had to have conversations with people over and over again about her headscarf, right? And it's like, that and people wanting to then like do investigative work around this in, in her professional life, like talk about the headscarf. And it's like, that's just because that's the only thing that you know about Muslim women, right? Uh, that's the only way that you've ever engaged Muslim women. Uh, and so to, excuse me, to continue to, to mine that, uh, that topic for more material doesn't actually give you any more insight. Uh, what it means is that you're being lazy and not questioning your own assumptions around uh, the lives of Muslim women. And I think that that's the thing. It's it's understanding that black intellectuals, I mean, to get back to the specifics of, of what this essay is about, black intellectuals are doing other work. Uh, and and it, I mean, it's like it's painstakingly slow and underfunded and, uh, you know, happens outside of... Uh, the bright media lights uh, and often like is constrained by the, the amount of time that it, that can be devoted to it. Uh, but other work is happening. Uh, it's a matter of, are you asking questions about that type of thing of, of, of folks that you already know? It's like, do you, you assume because you are consuming the, the public work of these intellectuals, that that's the extent of what they have to say without asking what are the conditions that are set for them to be able to say just those things, right? Like if I'm writing to you about uh, Trayvon Martin and I'm writing to you about Michael Brown and Jordan Davis and on and on and on, uh, what are the conditions 
that make it so that that's the only work that you ever see from me. Uh, why, when I have touched, like I have a body of work that encompasses a lot of a range of topics, uh, why is that the thing that you associate me with immediately? Why are you, aren't you interested in the other thoughts that I have? Uh, it, it's questioning those uh, those assumptions that you have uh, and ensuring that in, that you you are you yourself are intellectually curious uh, and want to hear from black intellectuals and uh, like non-white intellectuals to broaden it and uh, you know different people of different sexual identity and gender and gender expression and ability, like all of this, all of the markers, uh, why is it that you only want to hear that one story? What is so appealing about that story? Uh, and could you, could you ask different questions? I've got one last question for you, Michael. We've been speaking with author Michael Denzel Smith. He wrote the article, The Gatekeepers on the Burden of the Black Public Intellectual, which appears in the December issue of Harper's Magazine. You can read that article online right now at harpers.org. And you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Smith. That's M-Y-C-H-A-L Smith. One last question for you, Michael. And before I ask you our final question, I just want to say, I have really, uh, I not only really enjoyed your writing, I've really enjoyed our conversation this morning. What I try to do more than anything on this show, because I'm kind of dopey and I don't know too much, I want to learn as much as possible. So I really appreciate you and your writing and our conversation today. It really taught me a lot. Unfortunately, our last question, speaking of being lazy, our last question is called the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response. The broadcast area for our station covers an area with a mostly white population. How mm-hmm. did this doing this interview with a white radio show host to a radio audience that is likely mostly white, how do you think that affected the interview that we are ending with this question from hell? How did the mostly white audience of this show, hosted by a white guy, in any way change this morning's conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And the thing is, like, I don't know, right? <laughs> like, I I am not a, I'm not aware enough, right, to be able to say, like, what could have been different uh, about this particular conversation until I have a conversation similar to this with Black folks, right? Like, like until that, that, that's the, the condition in which this conversation is happening, I don't have a comparison point. I know that this is the conversation that I'm having. Um, so I don't know what questions like a black radio host would have for me because no one's asked. No, no one else asked <laughs> to have this conversation with me. Um, so I'll let you know once that, once that happens. All right, Michael. And when that does happen, I'm going to do everything I can to get you back on the show. This really has been an enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for being on this weekend's This Is Hell. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be the stupidest business model ever. Speaking of stupid, debate is stupid. Self-care will do very little to actually care for yourself. We'll hear an argument on why arguing is so dumb and find out that self-care is nothing more than a cop-out for our neoliberal system that refuses to provide a safety net for the public. When we talk to writer Ashling McRae, who posted the Outline.com article resolved, Debate is Stupid, and the CurrentAffairs.org story, 
self-care won't save us. Speaking of our horribly stupid business model of putting people before profits, a huge mistake. On Patreon this week, I offered my obituary for the late and far from great President George H.W. Bush. If you are sick and tired of being sick and tired of hearing glowing praise for the now dead President Trump, subscribe to us at patreon.com slash this is hell and get the version of Bush's legacy that is definitely not the media's. This week, we also shared an interview that Alex selected our January 19, 2013 conversation with Pamela Palmater, a Micmac lawyer whose family originates from the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick, Canada. Pam is an associate professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. She was on to talk to us back five years ago about the new First Nations movement, Idle No More, and we got to get back to covering that Idle No More movement by First Nations peoples uh, that was we were taking, talking about like maybe five years ago. Hear all about Idle No More in our interview with Pamela, who is chair in Indigenous Governance and academic director of the newly created Center for Indigenous Governments. But you can only hear that and another 100-plus Patreon podcast we have done recently, or done already, each featuring a new monologue for me and a classic interview that is otherwise not currently available online. So it's a completely different weekly show. But you only can hear it by subscribing to... This is Hell on Patreon, patreon.com slash this is hell. Special thanks this week for joining us goes to Nick Bozana, MF. Don't know what that stands for. Have no idea. William, Constantina, Peter, Muhammad. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 304 subscribers to our Patreon podcast. I did a little math and found out that what we need to be sustainable is 3,982 subscribers, so we're only 3,678 short of our goal. And you can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, did you do anything additional on Patreon this week? Uh, no, but I have a big, long post coming about how we book the show that I'm like halfway through writing uh, because I, I'm bringing back content pillars next uh, next year. And the first thing we have to figure out. Content pillars. But yeah, it helps. It helps uh, to organize the show. But it also, it's hard when uh, I can't figure out what colors you can or can't see in Excel. Uh, that's pretty much none. But you're right. Uh, on next week's Patreon podcast, if you subscribe, you'll get this month's installment of our ongoing Patreon-only series. An oral history of the Iraq wars that happened here live on This Is Hell. And Alex, this time we're going to be featuring a really intense interview from 2006 with Ben Griffin, an elite British SAS soldier, which is the British version of the SEALs here in the U.S., who refused to continue fighting in Iraq. This is back in 2006. Uh, he refused to continue fighting in Iraq, leaving the uh, army over what he called illegal tactics by U.S. troops and the general policies of all coalition forces. Ben spent three months in Baghdad, after which he told his commander that he was no longer prepared to fight alongside U.S. forces. Ben told commanders that he thought the Iraq war was illegal and said he had witnessed dozens of illegal acts by U.S. troops, claiming they viewed all Iraqis as untermenschen, the Nazi term for races regarded as subhuman. But we only have the best and brightest in our military service. And you can only hear that interview if you subscribe to Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what will be your last Google search? What will be your last Google search? All replies right on air right now. Winner gets a newly redesigned This Is Hell tote bag. 
what will be your last Google uh, search, you can leave your response right now at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you still may have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, a newly redesigned This Is Hell tote bag. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from Hell, because... What will be your last Google search, Isla C. said, tracking number for the two books I won from This Is Hell in 2017 and 2018, ah, LOL. Hey, Isla, get in touch with us and tell us what those books are, because I'm sure I'm sitting on them. Uh, Marsha W. says, or Marshall W. says, warning signs, black bag operation. Dan O. says, how to serve man. <laughs> Garrett L. says, cheap coffins. Conrad E. says, encyclopedias for sale. Mark R. says, is this on? Bradley R. says, Hezbollah, go fund me. (laughs) Scott P. says, sex positions with gas mask. What will be your last Google search? Kevin W. says, tasty boiled rat recipes. (laughs) Kai J. says, Unabomber manifesto PDF download. (laughs) Who said that? That was Kai J. Mike R. says, what beer is best served hot? Anthony P. says, should I sell my Bitcoin now? (laughs) Just my favorite one. Uh, What will be... Your last Google search, Penny S. says, my last Google search a few years ago was, why does Google search suck? Adam M. says, what is the best search alternative, search engine alternative <laughs> to Google? <laughs> Stephen B. says, who owns the drone with the serial number 856900876? <laughs> Brian C. says, is it safe to assume this nuclear waste runoff now made legal to dump in the rivers since the EPA has been dismantled will likely allow me to grow a third arm? Scott W. said, how to make Soylent Green. (laughs) Jason L. says, best vacation destinations for a nuclear winter on a budget. Jack B. says, how do I book a Greyhound bus to Mars? (laughs) What will be your last Google search? Austin H. says, BuzzFeed's top 10 least painful (laughs) ways to die. (laughs) Who said that? That was uh, Austin H. Andrea J. says, why is there no more rain? Kenneth Y. says, shortcuts for planning a Molotov cocktail party. <laughs> Richard M. says, what does P.O.E. mean? <laughs> Wait, what does P.O.E. mean? Purity of essence. Oh. Point of entry. Mitchell C. says. Peace on earth. Mitchell C. says, how to make medium rare beef jerky. <laughs> Ray C., another really good one says, Ray C. says, is reincarnation compulsory? <laughs> uh, Mike M. says, is Derek Jensen's birthday a national holiday? Dan K says, how big is a nuclear blast zone? Andrew T says, how do I remove my own appendix? <laughs> Astrid N says, where's the beef? That's pretty good. Ladio says, desquamation. That's the peeling of flesh. I had to look that up. Gross. Uh, John M says, how do I close the pod bay doors? Matt M says, how do you care for a new puppy? Aww. Pete B says, is it safe to? Huge explosion. <laughs> <laughs> Wally R says, which of these effing remotes controls the volume? <laughs> Pete B says, Alexa, where's the nearest fallout shelter? Aaron B says, signs of a stroke. Aaron D says, or yeah, Aaron D says, Alexa's phone number. Nathan H says, is this hell? A couple more uh, via Twitter. Agreeing412 said, dot com bubble butts. And time is short, MFers said, DIY funeral. <laughs> And via Instagram, we had a couple of bruisers said, boobs. <laughs> Burning up time said, proper order of taking tequila shots. Lime, salt, tequila. Salt, tequila, lime. Tequila, tequila, tequila. And finally, I think it's the last one. Howard F. said, reincarnation. 
Obviously, the very thoughtful response of Bruiser saying boobs. That's obviously running right to the top of the list. Uh, Adam saying the best search alternative to Google. That was good. Austin H saying uh, what are the best, the top ten ways to die on BuzzFeed. Buzzfeed, sorry, BuzzFeed. I'd like to have that one. Uh, should I should I sell my Bitcoin now? Which was awesome. How to serve man from Dan O. I really like that one. Uh, jeez. Uh, my response to this week's question from hell, my, what will be your last Google search? My last Google search will likely be the one that gets me disappeared by Google. Won't be the last Google search, but it will be mine. And I'm pretty sure it will not be flattering to our overlord, Larry Pace. Oh, or Page? Page. Larry Page. Oh, how I hate that guy for not giving me any of his ill-gotten Google gains. My girly went out with his brother. It's the least he can do is give me some money, a cheap bastard. Anyway, that makes this week's Question from Hell winner. Kai J for saying the last thing that he's going to Google is the Unabomber manifesto because that will definitely get you disappeared. This is hell. Congratulations, you're getting a tote bag, by the way, Kai J. And Isla C, please tell us what books you have not received, because I thought we were completely on top of all of our books being uh, appropriately delivered to all of the winners. This is how Office Hours happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from the This Is Hell office, and hopefully soon our studio completed as well. We're getting close. I'm hoping, hoping that by the time we do our first This Is Hell on a Saturday morning in 2019, we're actually doing it from our new studio. In any event, drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, chat uh, chat me up, hang out with me, and I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by, that is, if I remember. I haven't been remembering lately, and the books are really starting to pile up in my office. So come on in, say hello, watch me drink, get a free book, and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words This Is Hell. This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I want to thank the people who have dropped by over the last few weeks, including Rod, Alex, Ronaldo. It was great to see Wally this last week, Joel, Dave, Pete. Elliot, Shelley, Jordan, Shankar, and special thanks to Lee and Mike for dropping by. Also, thanks to Greg for joining us this Craig for joining us this week. And I know there were uh, plenty more people, but I was freaking out about getting my house ready for what are way too many scheduled holiday celebrations in my life. I'm cel- celebrating the holidays like a dozen times this year in a five-week stretch. It's really getting out of hand. You, too, can talk me up and get free books and stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, coming up on this week's This Is Hell. Debate is stupid, and self-care does little to actually care for yourself. During a moment of truth, Jeff spins the tale of 101 Wellbutrins. All that stuff, plus, who knows, maybe we'll get back to listener feedback. We have some listeners to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Debate is just idiotic.
Nothing is ever learned. It's nothing more than a competition, mere theater, not constructive discussion. And if you think self-care is a good idea, think again. Here to argue against both debate and self-care, writer Ashling McRae posted the article, Resolved, Debate is Stupid. Wow, that is correct, and there is no counter-argument. Debate is indeed very stupid, which you can find online at theoutline.com. She also recently published the article, Self-Care Won't Save Us, Do-It-Yourself Fixes, Put the Burden of Improving Health on the Individual and Ignore Systemic Causes, which you can find at currentaffairs.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ashling. Hello. Am I on the air? Yes. Ashling is a, is a freelance writer, researcher, and graduate student with a background in law and international relations. And I believe she's talking to us from London today. You can follow Ashling on Twitter at Ambient Gillian, Ambient Gillian, which is an awesome Twitter handle. You write about being a 16-year-old high schooler and being in debate club. Our first subject was uh, reinstating the death penalty, and I was anti. I gave all the points you would expect in an argument against the death penalty, the unacceptably high rate of false convictions, the particularly targeting of uh, non-white defendants, the cost, the cruelty, the lack of data proving its effectiveness, and so on. My opponent's speech was much shorter. They simply named three famous child killers, and my opponent won. What does that experience say to you about the state of public debate? Does the child killer argument still work and not only in a high school debate club? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you could make the argument, of course, that maybe I just wasn't particularly good at debate. Uh, That would be a perfectly fair point to make. But then that sort of raises the question, well, why do we expect to solve these questions when debate as it's usually performed, is a a matter of the skill of the individual, right? I don't think I, as a a 16-year-old, was representative of all the arguments or or the the validity of an argument against the death penalty. Um, And yet, uh, you know, I I tried my best to show the points that much smarter and more qualified people than me had been able to make, and yet I, I wasn't really able to convince anyone. And of course, you can say, well, you know, this is a high school debate, and you can't necessarily expect high schoolers to make um, those kind of decisions and, you know, maybe people evolve as they get older. But I mean, if you look at the state of the media, then maybe we're starting to see that that isn't really true, right? And people still very much value these kind of surface level debate skills, appearing very confident, talking very quickly, which uh, there's actually a term for that in debate. It's called spreading, um, which if you follow sort of uh, a lot of conservative figures like Ben Shapiro, they use a lot of this. It's basically the using confidence as giving the appearance that you're saying very intelligent things when you're you're not necessarily. And yeah, what what I kind of wanted to say was that debate it's not inherently like a bad thing to want to watch because it can be entertaining, but it doesn't really tell you who has the correct opinion, I think. So why do you think we fall so easily for false confidence? Why do, why do we fall for the theater of it instead of thinking about the content of what the person is saying during a debate? Well, I think this is a, this is a part of human nature as far as we can tell, right? If, if you're familiar with uh, the field of behavioral economics, um, it used to be kind of posited and still to an extent is posited in economics that humans are rational creatures that are, you know, uh, weighing the benefits and costs of every decision that they make. 
Um, and then you had uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky uh, making uh, these arguments that actually, you know, humans have biases and they don't make decisions in a rational way. And this, this is true for all of us, right? This is true for me. This is true for you. Um, it's true for everyone that we like stories. We like anecdotal evidence that connects with us on a personal level more than we like data that shows general trends. Um, we like people who seem like they might know what they're talking about. Uh, we like uh, people who make us laugh or who engage with us on an emotional level. Um, we see patterns where there aren't necessarily patterns or where patterns are, are being sort of shown to us in the media. We, we kind of make connections where there are none and then we don't make connections where there might be some. This is just how the human brain seems to work and debate plays into that a lot, I think. You write about how too often debate will uh, reward the more gross instincts instead of the better content, the more the, the more uh, evidence that you might have to back up your argument. Appealing to emotion, you were talking about how that works. Why can't well-argued factual arguments that has a lot of evidence backing it up, why can't those arguments also appeal to emotion? I think that they can, but it has to be framed in the right way because, yeah, unfortunately, it seems as though, you know, having large amounts of evidence and going through things slowly and, you know, weighing the evidence, it's not engaging on a personal level. And I think if we are going to debate people, then I think we should do that with an awareness that you can have the evidence on your side, but you also have to frame things in perhaps a personal way. You have to engage with people on both levels. And I think you also have to be aware that a lot of people will sort of, I've noticed a, a particular trend, um, particularly in the sort of more conservative or what they're now calling sort of classical liberal circles, is to try and brand yourself as someone who uses logic, you know, we see a lot of these people, oh, well, I like facts and I like reason and I like logic. But a lot of their arguments are essentially emotional or ideological in nature. They don't necessarily have the facts on their side. But if you brand yourself as someone who claims to have the facts on their side, then a lot of people will buy into that regardless of what the facts are. So I think, I think you can engage and debate people, but you have to be aware that having the right arguments on your side is not necessarily going to win things for you. You have to have a certain amount of skill and you have to understand what's going to make audiences tick. You also, you write that to understand why debate is inadequate to the uh, task of our current moment, one needs look no further than the Monk debate, a biannual event held in Toronto in which well-known academics, pundits, and policymakers argue about controversial statements in a in a modern-day gladiatorial uh, battle. But most recently, the resolution was the future of America is populist, not liberal, squaring up against each other, where the notorious ex White House strategist and jacuzzi ruiner Steve Bannon and guy who coined Axis of Evil but is somehow now in the resistance, David Frum. What does the debate topic, liberal versus populist, reveal to you about the state of debate today? What does it say when the two people debating a topic like liberal versus populist 
are both old white dudes from the right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this is another issue. You bring up a very important issue, which, which is that the adversarial nature of debate can kind of trick you into thinking that there are only two sides, right? And it can kind of cut off uh, other viewpoints that might not necessarily be a part of you know, either team. And I think this is very troubling because recently we've had a lot of, um, you know, there's always these uh, controversies about free speech on college campuses and, you know, oh, we didn't invite such and such person with, you know, fringe views to, to debate. And then a lot of people will come along and say, oh, no, we must debate. We must debate all the time. Debate, debate, debate. The issue with that is then often these, these controversies arise around people who don't really have anything of value to say, we've, we've already settled that, you know, climate change is happening and the Holocaust was bad. And we've kind of made these decisions. And when you put all this focus on these fringe views, you don't then get to have the conversations that are actually interesting. So if you are so obsessed with the idea of debate that you want to invite, let's say, a climate change denier, and someone who's saying, yes, climate change is real, then that's taking resources away from, you could be having a debate between two people who both agree, yes, the facts say climate change is happening. What are we going to do about it? And you might have someone who, let's say, is in favor of uh, putting money into nuclear fusion and another person who's into uh, solar and wind energy. Or you might have, well, you know, we can, we might have someone who's in favor of degrowth and you might have someone who's in favor of another system. So a lot of the more interesting, and in, in the case of climate change, the more urgent topics are kind of shoved aside in favor of these very simplistic, back to basic conversations that we've already settled and that aren't terribly interesting, except perhaps the people who love the idea of debate more than they like actually solving issues. One of the things that we've talked about a lot about on our show with different critics, with different guests on our show, is how one of the major problems that we have, especially within logic, like there is no alternative, one of the major problems we have is a lack of political imagination. How much does debate mm. stifle political imagination? Oh, absolutely. And I think I would, I would completely agree with that, that it's often these debates, they want to tie into, I mean, people who put on debates, these are primarily for entertainment, right? Um, this is usually when you're having debates on, you know, at college campuses or being put on by newspapers or whatever. It's not the case of, okay, then we've, we've resolved the measure and now we're going to go down uh, to City Hall and we're going to try and, you know, put this policy into action. It's more a case of drawing on recent media controversies and drawing on hot topics, but those topics might be within a, a much narrower, much narrower range of views than would actually create interesting debate, right? So there's a lot of stuff that's not being discussed when we limit ourselves to discussing these same hot button issues again and again, I think. You write that these days we are constantly being told that one of the top threats to society is not climate change or fascism, but people stifling debate. Is, well, is stifling debate a dog whistle for someone other than me that I simply 
can't understand, can't hear, don't understand. What is what is being said when people are saying that the most their greatest concern, uh, the what they think is the greatest threat to society, is this lack of ability for free speech? Well, I think a lot of the people, if I may generalize, it they if you feel like the worst thing that's happening is someone stifling debate. That kind of suggests to me that you don't have bigger problems on your plate. For a lot of people, if you are, let's say, trans or if you are not white or if you are an immigrant, then there are questions of life and death happening for you right now, right? And it often comes, I know people kind of get um, bored of the word privilege, but I think it is ultimately a very privileged position that you would value debate with a capital D over actually keeping people safe and dealing with real problems. It's a very, it's a very idealized idea of what politics is. Um, I wrote about this in my first, the first piece I ever wrote about, uh, it was about the Rubin report, Dave Rubin. And it's this idea that politics is, you know, two people sitting in comfortable chairs, and having a little cozy conversation rather than politics being something that happens in the streets or in hospitals or in prisons um, or in immigration interviews, right? Politics is, is real and it's very, very real for some people more than others. So we end up in this situation where people, and a lot of these people, not necessarily all people, but some people who insist a lot on debates, and you must listen to me, you must, listen, you know, I have free speech, you must not silence me. The reason they're falling back on, on those claims is because they don't have anything else to offer, right? A lot of people with very nasty views, whose views are, are not based in, in evidence or in reason or in humanity, are going to just say, well, you know, I have the right to free speech just as much as you do. And this plays a lot this works a lot on liberals, and when I say liberals, of course, I don't mean liberal in the sort of left-leaning sense, but in the the you know in the sense of Western liberal democracy. Um, a lot of people they really value those principles so much that they kind of get blinded to the fact that this is being used as a ruse for people with very nasty views to get their voices heard and and to propagandize essentially. Uh, you write that, admittedly, debates can produce some pretty entertaining clips of people you don't like getting owned. And uh, depending on the format, debates can sometimes be well-paced, reasonably fair, and introduce you to new information. How difficult is it in today's media environment to create good debate that introduces new ideas? Does the commercial, corporate, establishment, mainstream, whatever you want to call it, media, simply, is that simply not the environment, uh, that it just doesn't encourage or motivate good debate, that it's more inclined towards entertainment instead of learning? Yeah, I mean, you have to bear in mind, right, that with the media, I mean, the purpose is to get clicks, right, or to get attention. The, the good example that I used in my article of a debate that was sort of uh, calm and, and reasonably well-paced and people have the time to air their views. Um, that was a debate that happened at Pomona College between, uh, it was a, oh, I forget his name, he was a, a, from the Cato Institute um, arguing against Nathan J. Robinson, the editor of Current Affairs, 
and my sometime boss. Um, but I didn't, I didn't put him in there just, uh, to flatter my boss. Um, <laughs> he, uh, this debate was basically as far as I can tell, um, just put on at a college and then they just kind of uploaded it for the sake of uploading it. It wasn't to get clicks. And that was a very well moderated debate. It wasn't there for entertainment. If you compare that to something like, um, Politicon, um, which is where that, uh, that clip of, of Charlie Kirk, um, from Turning Point USA, sort of uh, getting up and yelling about how he lives like a capitalist every day and, you know, how much money he makes and how much money he gives to charity. Those type of debates, I mean, they're, they're again, they're there for entertainment purposes, right? And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but it was more, my article was not so much aimed at, you know, let's ban debate, but it was more be aware when you're watching debate that you're not necessarily learning as much as you think you are. We're kind of, we like to valorize debate as, you know, the highest form of intellectual discourse, but it's, it's not that right. And, and real intellectual discourse is, is difficult and it's slow and it requires, you know, thinking through things really hard and reading a lot and experiencing a lot. And that's just something that, it's it's very different from debate as an entertainment format, right? So, uh, to what degree then do you think debates this this kind of sense of theater when it comes to debates? Uh, to what degree did uh, mistaking debate and its sense of theater as politics lead to a entertainers being seen as politicians, even electing them from Reagan to Schwarzenegger to Trump and everyone? between and before, and does debate create a more fertile environment for the rise of the far right? I think it absolutely does. I mean, if you go and and you study the far right, then uh, I think it was, was it Walter Benjamin who said, uh, you know, fascism is uh, politics as aesthetics. It's very, it's very aesthetic based, right? It's all fascism or the alt-right, the far-right, neo-Nazism, whatever you want to call it, um, anything within that group, it's all about the aesthetics. It's about saying certain things and dressing certain ways, uh, pointing to certain ideals, and it's all about acting in a way. And I think that very much ties into to what you said about entertainment and politics becoming increasingly blurred. And this is how you end up, I mean, this is how you end up with a President Trump, right? Is it someone who goes up and he says certain things and he, you know, he causes a big fuss and then everyone looks and then everyone's looking more and then he has more attention and then he says more things. And it's this kind of cycle of of politics as entertainment. And even when a lot of people hate him, he's still, you know, he's still a celebrity and his sense of celebrity is being increased. And I think this is when we start focusing more and more on these aesthetics of people talking in a way that is attention grabbing, whether that's Trump, who, you know, doesn't talk in a, a particularly sophisticated way, in fact, talks in a very unsophisticated way, but in a way that gets a lot of attention, or whether it's a conservative or very far right person who is very, very smooth talking and is able to sort of direct attention away from their nastier views and try and, you know, cover it up. 
whatever tactic you're using, it's a tactic, right, to try and kind of cover up for the more morally abhorrent views that you're advocating for. And yeah, I think this this sense of politics as entertainment gives a lot of it's good soil for the far right to grow, I think. In your other article that we're here to talk about today, your current affairs article, Self-Care Won't Save Us, Do-It-Yourself Fixes, uh, Put the Burden of Improving Health on the Individual and Ignore Systemic Causes. You write self-care is a term that has been prominent in healthcare theory for many decades, but has recently increased in visibility online. The term generally refers to a variety of techniques and habits that are supposed to help with one's physical and mental well-being, reduce stress, and lead to a more balanced lifestyle. And you quote an article of The Atlantic saying, It's like if you were walking outside in a thunderstorm, umbrella-less, and you walked into a cafe filled with plush armchairs, wicker baskets full of flowers, and needle points on the walls that say things like, be kind to yourself and you are enough. There's these signs here in Chicago that are huge and go along uh, like wrought iron fences for, you know, what seem like maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet. And in big letters, they say, you are are beautiful. Those signs drive me nuts, and I cannot really figure out why I hate those signs so much. How much do signs that say, be kind to yourself, and you are enough, and you are beautiful, improve our well-being and reduce stress? Yeah, well, I I don't really know what those signs that you're talking about are supposed to achieve, really. Like... You know, you could be driving along and you see a sign that says you are beautiful. And it's like, well, A, you don't know who I am because you're a sign. So maybe I'm not beautiful. Maybe I just (laughs) murdered someone. You don't know. And also, it's, yeah, it's this very, again, it's, it's the surface level stuff, right, that is trying to, I think, I, one thing that, uh, I think when you, you, write an article and then it gets published, you immediately start finding fault with it yourself. And one thing that I kind of wish that I specified a little bit more is that I don't think self-care is inherently a bad thing. And I think there are also different levels of self-care because as I said, um, as you mentioned, that I mentioned in the article, um, it originally started as a medical term, literally just for making sure that people who had medical conditions took their own medicine their you know their physio exercises or whatever it might be um and there is still a level of medical self-care where people who maybe are engaged with therapists um are using coping mechanisms that the therapists have given them um so there are different levels of of self-care as an actual medical practice um whereas i was focusing more on these sort of little do-it-yourself self-care tips that we see around all the time about, you know, take a bath and, you know, light some candles and take care of yourself. Um, And basically what I was going for is that while those tips are not inherently bad, they're also not a replacement for adequate medical care. And they're also not really that they're focusing on the atomized self, right? The individual trying to solve their own problems when these problems might be systemic in nature, we know that um, depression and anxiety are, are increasing in the younger generations. And to what degree that's just a facet of um, older generations maybe also having mental health issues but not talking about it as much, you know, it's still unclear. 
Um, but certainly, I think uh, a lot of people m may have experienced mental health problems themselves or know a lot of people who are. And a lot of the time, this is rooted in material causes, right? So it may be a, a job that's making you miserable. It may be financial insecurity um, or just a, a sense that something isn't quite right with the world. I know a lot of people are more and more having anxieties related to climate change. Um, so the issue I had and what I was trying to get across in the article, um, and hopefully it did come across, is that these very um, kind of nice on the surface, positive talk and cutesy talk about, yeah, you know, you are beautiful and you are loved. It doesn't actually solve any of the issues and it kind of puts the burden on the individual to to fix themselves with this surface level advice rather than actually dealing with the fact that there may be systemic causes at the heart of what they're feeling. So how much then, because, you know, uh, health care here in the U.S. is very expensive, especially under neoliberalism. The costs, is, costs keep going up, so we don't have very good access to health care. And so I started thinking about, well, who has access to this self-care? Is this self-care a replacement, a substitute for, uh, you know, a fully adequate public health care system under neoliberalism? Is that what self-care is? But I don't think the self-care is for everybody. I think that it's not for you know, it's still something that is going to cost you money and money that other people may not have. So how much is self-care a replacement, a neoliberal substitute for a fully public health care system? And is self-care something for everyone? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that in the U.S., like it's, 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 I hope you won't take offense, but it's kind of hard to explain to an American, even an American who is for universal health care, just how absolutely insane your healthcare system seems to the rest of the world. It's really, really, it's like watching someone just poke themselves in the eye with like a hot, shitty stick. Um, am I allowed to curse, by the way? Is that okay? Or are you oh, sure. Curse? Why yeah. not? I'm fine with it. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And it's not that there's a lot of different ways of, of doing healthcare. It's not like you have to get rid of an insurance system. Um, so I'm from the UK, which obviously has a, a, an entirely taxation-based system, and then everything's free at the point of access. But I've also lived in countries that have um, insurance systems, but insurance systems that actually work. I mean, um, I'm based in the Netherlands right now. I pay 100 euros a month, so like 100 bucks a month, and that covers pretty much anything except for, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery or something like that. So it's it's definitely that if you're based in the U.S., that would be the first place to start is to is to get a universal healthcare system that works for everyone. Um, and also to your second point, I think it's absolutely right that um, self-care as, it, as it's sort of advertised now is not for everyone. You see a lot of these little um, cartoons. I'm sure you've seen them pass around on social media where it's like a little friendly little character. And, you know, it's wrapped up in blankets and saying, you know, oh, it's OK if you just want to, you know, take a day off today. But if you have kids, maybe you can't take a day off today. Right. You, your kids have got to eat. If you're, you know, in at will employment, you don't you can't necessarily afford to take a day off. Right. It's it's aimed at a specific set of people, I think, who are able to take that time off for themselves. And it doesn't. Yeah. It, even those little um, home care tips, they don't work the same way for everyone. They're not equally available to everyone. 
Just a couple more questions for you. Uh, you write, these are deep material, and there are deep material social issues that all of us are touched by to at least some degree. We know it when we see people begging in the streets, when we read yet another report that tells our, us our planet is dying, when we try to figure out why we feel sad and afraid and put it down as an off day, trying not to think about just how many off days we seem to have. We turn to our TVs, to our meditation apps, and hope we can paper over the cracks. We are in darkness, and when we cry out for light, we are handed a scented candle. Does society... Does our culture under neoliberalism, does neoliberalism simply not take mental health seriously enough? Does, does in the market under neoliberalism, is there no value or a lesser value when it comes to the people's mental health? Well, I think that the thing with neoliberalism is that it, it does sort of take into account these factors, but in a very surface level way, right? So it's it's combining liberal values in the sense of, you know, being, you know, pro-gay and pro-diversity and then, you know, all those good things. And you are starting to see more and more, even in the mainstream media, discussion of mental health. Um, I mentioned in my article that, um, you know, in the UK, we're under a conservative government, but they've recently started talking about mental health and um, putting, well, I think the thing that sums it up most is that our prime minister said recently that she was going to create a new ministry for mental health, but they're not going to have a budget. So I, I think that that kind of sums it up in that people are paying attention to it and people are talking more about it, but it's in a very selective way that it's not actually going to solve anything. Um, and this is not a new phenomenon. Of course, you know, we've always had um, you know, <laughs> issues with the way we deal with mental health. Um, and mental health care has always kind of lagged behind physical health care in terms of stigma and in terms of budgets. Um, and I don't think that's being entirely ignored, but it's being focused on, A, in a way that is not going to solve the material heart of it, and B, in a way that is often focused on mental health for the wrong reasons. So you're starting to see more stories about um employers, for example, um, encouraging, you know, bringing people in to teach about mindfulness and uh, getting in, uh, employees to wear Fitbits to make sure that they're exercising more. And, you know, talking about trying to improve their employees' mental health. And this may not even necessarily be an explicitly um, profit-driven thing. This may be, you know, very well the, the, the product of employers who genuinely want to make their workers happy, but it's fundamentally from a perspective of an employee as a producer of value, right? And you're going to get more value if your employee is um, happier and more productive. And I think we're kind of, I was talking about this recently, the way we talk about self-care, it's almost like we're medicalizing the everyday bits of life, the parts of life that you're actually supposed to enjoy. So it's saying, hey, you know, um, take care of yourself, go for a walk, enjoy a nice, you know, hot drink and, you know, smell the flowers. But it's almost like that's being treated as your medical care to make you not go insane. So the rest of your time you can be working and, you know, being productive. So it's kind of this weird reversal where all the things that life is 
I think meant to be about enjoying yourself and enjoying being on the earth. That's the sort of, you got to do just enough of that to um, keep yourself functioning in the neoliberal era. Um, so you can go back to work. <laughs> which is which is the new world, as you point out, that millennials find themselves in. And I just want to make sure before I ask you my last question, I just want to make sure that everybody understood that within your writing at Current Affairs, again, self-care won't save us. You, you're pointing out over and over again uh, how life is different for millennials in the area the era that they are, that millennials are being raised in, and so for people who uh, might have children who are millennials or people who are older and want to understand millennials and the things that they have to face today when they enter the workforce. This is a fascinating article. Again, self-care won't save us. Your other article that you had posted recently that we discussed, Resolve Debate is Stupid, people can find at theoutline.com. I have one last question for you, Ashling. We've been speaking to writer Ashling McRae, who posted the articles, Resolved Debate is Stupid and Self-Care Won't Save Us. And you can follow Ashling on Twitter at Ambient Gillian. You can find her writing at both theoutline.com and currentaffairs.org. One last question for you, Ashling. And as it is for all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write on, this is on the self-care issue, you write, most importantly of all, there's hope, perhaps the most powerful force in life. No bubble bath can give us that. Maybe that's a gift we give ourselves. This week, an organization that tabulates baby names revealed that the names quickly rising on the list uh, were those associated with self-care, including aspirational names like hope, harmony, and peace, as well as those names that are uh, you know, representative of the healthy foods of the self-care movement. Unbelievably, a name rising quickly is kale. So why doesn't? And how doesn't self-care provide hope? So, I think it provides, it doesn't provide hope in that it, well, I'm going to start again. Now I can see why you call it the question from hell. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think it provides hope in that it's, it's generally dressed in positive language and encourages you to, take care of yourself and implement some kind of change of only a, of, of a minor change and I think that's a start um, but it's not giving you hope in the sense that I think the best kind of hope is the one that something major might change right and that's why I kind of I, I only I didn't expand on it too much but I talked a little bit at the end of the article about how um activism whether that's you know big activism or just small just just volunteering in your community um just that that can provide i think a type of comfort and joy that um a candle isn't going to give you um although i do like candles quite a lot um so i think it's good to kind of have that idea of self-care as a little picnic. I don't necessarily want to say that it's that it's a an evil thing or or a bad thing, but it's not enough, right? That's that's why it's titled it. It won't save us. And I would encourage anyone, 
if you um, feel like you like there's something a little bit wrong in the world, then you know, uh, cheesy though it is, you know, maybe try and set a little right in the world. Just you know, whether that's saving like a a local library or a local building that you like, or doing a little bit of volunteering. I know a lot of us don't have a lot of free time these days, but you know, do little things that you can, and you might find that that actually, even from a selfish perspective, that that does give you something that uh, that self care can't. Ashling, I really appreciate you being on our show with us this week, and I hope you appreciate the gift we'll be sending you in the mail, which is a scented candle. <laughs> All right. <Thanks laughs> All right. Take care, Ashling. Thank you so much for being on our show, and I'll be annoying you in the future because your writing really is exceptional, and I'll want to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. In a few minutes, during a moment of truth, Jeff spins the tale of 101 Wellbutrins. Whatever that is. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, come on, who's kidding who? Support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes to John for his tithing ways. Thanks, as always, to Cherish for her continuing support. And thanks to somebody named Gerald who wants a stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week. And in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration, your support will be needed now more than ever. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual or whatever annual number party that is holiday office party wednesday december 19 all night long at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon last year we had a huge turnout as it turns out that lots of people at their workplace they they either don't have a holiday office party or they don't actually have an office anymore to host a party or they don't like the people at their office yet they still want to attend an office party with their co-workers especially the ones they actually like And this year's office party is going to be special. Not only will the Three-Legged Tacos food truck be stationed outside, but Carrie's will have the Goose Island 2017 Bourbon County Proprietor's Stout and the 2017 Founders Kentucky Bourbon Stout, both on tap, plus the 2017 Bourbon County Stout in bottles inside. We'll also have some This Is Hell swag, so if you're looking for a last-minute holiday gift and you know someone who likes or should like This Is Hell, You can get it at the party. Again, that's our This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, Wednesday, December 19th, all evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Hundred and one well butrins. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Hundred and one well butrins. That's how many I have today, and here is why. I get my depression meds from Canada. I order them as I need them. When one batch of ninety pills is three weeks from running out, which is three months worth of pills, I order another batch. Sometimes I order the generics made in India. You get 100 of those, whereas with the Canadian ones, you only get 90. The problem with the Indian ones is that they come in foil blister packs, 
which is wasteful. But I forget that they come that way. If I remembered, I wouldn't order the Indian generics. I don't like wasteful packaging. Last time I placed my order, some events conspired to delay the delivery of my pills. The Canadian pharmacy called me to say that they no longer accepted payment by Visa card. The problem was I'd missed the voicemail they'd sent me and only stumbled upon it two days after they left it. Then it took a few days for me to figure out how to pay them by voided check sent by email because the only card I have is a Visa card, a Visa debit card. The first person I talked to about it actually gave me the wrong information, and it sounded so wrong to me that I spent a couple days fretting over it in my mentally ill fashion before calling back and straightening it out. What I had attempted to do when I first ordered was give them plenty of time to send the pills before I left for Chicago for a week, because I would need the pills in Chicago. I was going to be performing, and it was essential that I be in as fit a mental state as psychopharmacologically possible. What I had to do two weeks before leaving Chicago, because of this delay created by their no longer taking payment by visa and my missing the message and then my neurotic stalling over the situation, was to only take a pill every other day the way old people cut their pills in half to save money, except instead of halving the number of pills I took each day, I doubled the number of days per pill per which I took each pill. I say per which. Yes, it's a grammatical figure I've just invented. What happens when I stop taking Wellbutrin is, first, I feel a weird sensation of squishiness when turning my head, as if my head were passing through a squishy volume of space-time, as if space-time were pudding, sandy pudding, made of broadcast static, and the movie I'm in is missing a few frames that have been eaten by this static. It's a disturbing feeling. If I go off Wellbutrin completely, I have severe depression, panics, and meltdowns. I stop eating. I can barely hold it together. So I doubled the number of days per which I took each pill prior to the Chicago trip so that during the Chicago trip, I would have enough to take one every day. I prepped like that for two weeks. But maybe because weeks have seven days and seven is an odd number, or maybe because I unconsciously hoarded more pills than I would need, or maybe I just can't count or didn't bother to count. At any rate, I returned to L.A. from Chicago with one pill left over. And when I got home, there waiting for me were 100 Indian generic Wellbutrins. Added to the one extra of those I'd hoarded for the trip, and you have 101 Wellbutrins. And so, all was well, or so I thought. You see, for some reason, Cruella DeVille wanted to make a coat out of my Wellbutrins. It was an impractical idea, but she was obsessed. Really weird. So my Wellbutrins and I had to run away from her. She chased us in a Rolls Royce that matched her hair, and there were hijinks. There is something pure and good about Wellbutrin or bupropion hydrochloride, something that keeps me perceiving the world and processing information in a way that prevents me from losing my place in society. I suffered for this place in society. It's not a spectacular place, but it is an advantageous place. Considering where some people end up, the story of Cruella de Vil and the 101 Wellbutrins is heartbreaking. How can someone be so greedy and selfish and obsessed as to recklessly seek to take from me what I need to make my life go relatively smoothly? Eh? And yet, it's the age-old story. Some obsessive, 
self-centered turd of a person just wants what they want and damn the rest, damn the rest of society, damn the future. If only she knew what my well-butrins meant to me, she'd see the error of her ways. It's tempting to think that, but that's not how people like to operate. They don't have empathy, these people. People without empathy are a big problem. People like Jack the Ripper and Ayn Rand and Donald Trump. Strange, these empathyless people. Are, they're clearly insane, yet I'm the one taking the meds, desperately clinging to my place in society, while their insanity has somehow secured them their overblown position in the social matrix, a position from which they seek to impose their intrusive, awful will on others at every opportunity. What makes their will and desires more effective than mine? Are they better than my will and desires? They're more ambitious than mine, that's for sure. I had no idea how important asserting my will was going to be back when I was a child. Now that I've learned, it's probably too late to put this knowledge to use. Civilization is making the world unfit for civilization and other living things. But as civilization destroys itself, I will have hope or at least I have 101 more days to have hope in. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. I thought I knew what Wellbutrin was, but I thought it was really funny that yesterday when I decided to look it up online, I search on the term Wellbutrin, and the first thing that comes up is your announcement for the radio show this year, <laughs> this week. Hey, happy 90th birthday. Thank you very much. Who the hell is Nemo Chamsky, anyway? Nemo Chamsky is, he was a whale uh, at, no, 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 he was a fish that got lost. Oh. They were looking for Nemo, and, but then he turned 90, and they were like, yeah, forget it, he's old already. He's probably been flushed down the toilet. Yeah, but didn't some one-legged guy get strapped to his belly at one point? Ooh, I don't know. I can't remember either. I don't know. That's a detail. That's a detail. You know what I know from details? Nothing. <laughs> the magazine the or just in general? There. The devil is there. All right, Jeffy. All right, what? Until next week. Uh, Stay beautiful. Oh, okay. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about this is hell. So share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This is hell has a very limited promotional budget. So we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly share the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more share it anonymously because, you know, privacy, surveillance. Thanks this week goes out to first the dozens of you who shared the very sarcastic and misleading article at Counterpunch about how I am America's leading intellectual. Total lie. Also, thanks to Julie, Nick, all of you who shared our interview with Sarah Churchwell about the true meanings of American Dream and America First, including Anarcha Media, Tom, Twin Ports, Democratic Socialists of America, Stephanie, the lot of you who shared our talk with Natasha Leonard on white supremacist cops, which was shared by Dan, Fergus, Jan, Gorilla Gramophonics, Turtle Island Liberation, now Douglas, Curly, Nan, Pammy, Astrid, and everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual holiday office party Wednesday, December 19th, all night long at Carrie's Lounge. Last year we had a huge turnout. This year, if you 
are work for a place that doesn't have an office party or they actually don't have an office to have a party or you don't like the people at your office, uh, you can hang out with the people who you do like at your office at our annual holiday office party. Again, that's on Wednesday, December 19 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. There's going to be the three-legged tacos food truck out front, and Carrie's will be will have the Goose Island 2017 Bourbon County Proprietor Stout and the 2017 Founders Kentucky Bourbon Counties or Kentucky Bourbon Stout, both on tap, plus the 2017 Bourbon County Stout in bottles. We'll also have this is Hell Swag. So if you're looking for a last-minute holiday gift, all you have to do is join us at our holiday office party on. Wednesday, December 19th, starting at 6 p.m. and going all night long. Uh, there's an event I also want to share with you uh, real quickly. Past guest Yasha Levin, who's going to be on next week's show to talk about this, has a Kickstarter to help fund a new movie he's working on called Pistachio Wars, Killing California for Snack Food. It's a groundbreaking documentary about Beverly Hills billionaires, marketing madness, water privatization, and war with Iran. Go to Kickstarter and search on Pistachio Wars or Yasha Levin, that's L-E-V-I-N-E, or go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell we shared the Kickstarter on our Facebook uh, at our Facebook page as well. Let's see, Alex. I know we will be revealing my favorite books of 2018 next week on This Is Hell, and the following week, uh, what was the thing I'm going to be doing? Oh, the following week, I'm going to be telling you what we have learned over the last six months here on This Is Hell. But have we booked anybody for next week's guest or next week's show yet? Alex? Uh, besides Yasha, I think I'm trying to book uh, Jesse Barron to talk about his book, Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. Yeah, this is a very happy book. And of course, A Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, where the coolest musicians get their news. This is hell. See you at Office Hours this week on Wednesday at Carrie's Lounge. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell in midweek. And tune in next week for our regular uh, Saturday morning show right here on Chicago's Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM broadcast live every Saturday morning beginning at 9 a.m. And streaming and podcast at thisishell.com. I want to thank uh, not only Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell for producing this week's show. I also want to thank writer Ashling McRae who posted the article Resolved, debate is stupid, and self-care won't save us. Also, thanks to author Michael Denzel Smith, who wrote the article The Gatekeepers on the Burden of the Black Public Intellectual. If you did not hear that in interview or didn't hear it in its entirety, go back to thisishell.com later on today and listen to it. I found it enlightening. Uh, also, thanks to Z- Zenobia Jeffries Warfield, who is author of Why Co-ops and Community Farms Can't Close the Racial Wealth Gap. Thanks to transit organizer Mason Herson Horde, who is co-author of the article Dark Municipalism, The Dangers of Local Politics. Thanks to Martha Piskowski for returning to talk about what's happening with the migrant caravan in Mexico. This week's hangover cure is jujuba. Don't ask me any more about that. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is hell. And the only way you can get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show is by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.